over to the Comet Cafe, uh, and that's where we're going to do our pizza dinner. Um, we'll take money at that point if you brought your, your $5 for that, um, and then come back over here. I'm going to teach for the first section, uh, and then Ronnie's going to teach a little while later, and then towards the end, we're going to have some Q&A, but the way that we're going to do that is uh, we'll actually have a question box that we'll uh, set out during the, the dinner time and after, uh, and so you can write a question, and because with, with this many people in our limited time, uh, we just don't have, we're not going to be able to get to everyone's questions kind of thing. Um, Casey and, and Mandy and some of the staff will kind of sort through those and, and try to come up with ones that they feel like are particularly applicable or that a lot of people are asking or things like that, and, and uh, we will do that. So uh, other than that, like I said, just plan on kind of taking notes. If you, I, I know this is a long uh, haul. I put an article in the back of your packet that I think is it's a pretty long article, and we printed it really small since we're printing so many copies. Um, but it's a great one. I would definitely encourage all of you to read that at some point, and I'd encourage you, if you just get bored of hearing me talk, to read it while I'm talking. Um, and then you can at least still be learning. Um, but no, I, I think it does a, as good a job as anything that I've found of really kind of taking a fresh look at a lot of these uh, topics, and, and especially in the area of sex that we're going to be talking about tonight. All right, rethinking our goals for today. Um, you know, I've been thinking about this and, and sort of planning for this in the back of my mind for seven or eight months now. And the thing that as I was studying and reading more books and, and uh, talking to more people and going through all these things that I started realizing is that there is absolutely no way in, you know, three to four hours of instruction to even begin to really grapple with this topic. Uh, and I think most of us know that um, there's, there's probably nothing more, uh, no topics more than marriage and sex that dominate a lot of our thinking and a lot of our decision making in, in good ways and in bad ways. It's just such a huge part of life. Uh, while in one sense, and we'll talk about this later, the scripture doesn't have a whole lot to say directly about these topics. In another sense, the scripture is all about these things. It's on every page. It's it's a backdrop to the scripture, and it's a backdrop to our lives. Uh, every single one of us has been deeply and personally affected. And so uh, a lot of the challenge of today was trying to limit the scope and figure out, all right, if, we, if we're going to take this time, what would we talk about? What, what could our goals be? Uh, building a biblical theology of our bodies, of sex, of marriage from the ground up, there's absolutely no way. Um, you can go read you know, many, many books that are this thick on that topic and be learning. And so my challenge today and the thing that I want us to do is more just renew our minds on this. Uh, I was talking to one of the alumni this week and, and um, trying to explain what I was going to do. And he's like, oh, so kind of tilling the soil. And I was like, yeah, that's a great illustration. Just sort of turning things up. Because I think there are a whole lot of ideas, assumptions, that we bring to the table, often we don't even know where they came from. Uh, we just kind of picked them up along the way. Some of them may have been from our parents, from church, from friends in junior high, but we, our, our views, our thoughts on this stuff come from so many places, and unless we take a concerted time to sit and really think through it, uh, we don't, and we don't really process those things. 
but I, I deeply believe that how we think about things shapes how we live. Uh, that it is those very assumptions that determine the decisions that we make. And so I want to challenge some of those things today. Uh, tonight's going to be more about asking the right questions as opposed to me giving you the right answers. Uh, these are things that I'm still learning about. Um, there's not a single original idea that I have come up with here. Everything that I'm going to share with you are things that I've read or heard from people smarter and wiser than I. Um, but I'm not going for conclusive thoughts, and I, I can tell you that even with all the things that I've read, the things that I want to share, uh, I'm not even sure what I think about all of them, but I think they're valuable to think about. I think the questions that we'll raise are valuable to, to be processing through. Uh, starting off on this topic, I'll say that I'm single and I've never had sex, that I don't stand up here as this experienced person in those areas to speak to you. Jesus was single as far as we know. Paul was single as far as we know, at least at the time he was writing. Um, and, uh, and they were able to minister in these areas. And like I said, none of these are my ideas anyway, so uh, hopefully I'll have something valuable to share. So I want to question your assumptions because they shape our conclusions. And what by assumptions I mean the ideas and beliefs that we sort of take for granted. Why talk about this topic? Because our culture is failing miserably in this topic. Most of us have been affected, not just affected in deep ways, but affected negatively in deep ways by these topics. It's what sort of rips through our families, uh, rips through our own lives. Our culture needs a fresh witness in this area. They need good news. And the sad reality is that the church of late hasn't had um, really the, even the reputation in our culture to offer anything about this. The, that no one's impressed by the way that we do these things. And so... They're not interested in listening to our message. You know, it's one of the challenges I think that we have, um, even in, in some of the discussions around uh, same-sex marriage and things that are going on in our culture, is that people have just sort of discounted the church's opinion. Our record on marriage isn't any better than theirs. As I shared at, at UNT the other night, you know, in one, uh, one recent kind of survey study, they found that the highest uh, demographic group divorce rate is Baptists in the south of the country. You know, and some of the lower ones are atheists in the northeast. And I think there's a whole lot of reasons for that. Uh, but, but when that's the reality, when we don't look different, or when the difference that we look isn't one that really reflects God's glory, uh, then we don't have much to say. And, and my prayer and hope for you guys uh, is not that, you know, all right, all of you stick with it and stay married, you know, forever, but that, that you do things right from the beginning and that you have happy, joyful marriages and that that's the legacy that you leave your kids, that that's the assumptions that they go into their life with and that we have a chance to really bless our neighbors through that. Okay, rethinking where our views came from. We probably live in the most sexually explicit culture, society, since the Roman Empire. Uh, and, and movies and things play on this a whole lot. I would say that, that while they were just maybe as open about sex and had as many sexual dysfunctions in their culture as we do, we're probably even more inundated by it. You know, it's just in our face 
all day, every day, because we live in a, a, a commercialized society and sex sells. And so it's every commercial. It's I'm being sold vacuum cleaners based on how sexy the woman that's vacuuming is, you know, and whatever it is, every billboard, everything. And, and that's just the message that's hitting us all day long about what is sexy. And I think in one sense that's discouraging to think, oh, look where we've, look where we've come back to, you know, the, the descent of culture and, and how do you face something that's that daunting. But on the flip side, I think it's encouraging to know that we aren't the first Christians to face these challenges to biblical views of marriage and sex. You know, that the early church faced something that was just as daunting. In a lot of ways, they had a much smaller uh, segment of society with which to, to resist that. In a lot of estimations, there were only, you know, seven, ten thousand Christians maybe by the end of the first century. And they're living in this sex-saturated society where marriage has broken down completely, morals have broken down completely, um, and yet in only a few hundred years they were able to completely transform that. When we talk about you know, what we've sort of descended from. It, it wasn't there. It was the heights that they were able to get in some of these areas uh, centuries later. And I would say that it was their example more than their political power that influenced and ultimately changed their society. It was their example more than their political power. You know, the, the reality is we have way more political power as Christians today we just have a much worse example. And I think we've got to, uh, to learn some lessons from what they did. I want to look at three dominating ways that Christians have looked at sex and marriage over four kind of key eras. And I'm going to try and summarize, you know, 2,000 years of, of history in uh, just a handful of minutes. And so I'm just going to start by saying I'm going to make huge generalizations and have a very limited scope to this. Um, but, but I do think there are some helpful things for us to see as, as we think about this and that will lead us to where we're going. Um, the first section is the early church, those first two to three centuries. And, and there's no pivotal event that, you know, shifts all of this and all of a sudden everyone thinks differently. Not at all. These are, are movements in society and in culture, ideas that take root uh, and slowly grow. But the early church's views were dominated by the Old and New Testament. They were dominated by the Old and New Testament. And they, they went back, you know, not just to the New, but uh, which was still emerging in a lot of ways and not available in its completed form to most of them, really probably throughout this whole time. They're still debating what, what even belonged in it. But they went back to the Old Testament as well in trying to figure out what marriage and sex really looked like. And one of the key things that emerged from that is that they saw the body and the spirit as a unity, as a single thing. And this is an idea that in a lot of ways we've lost today because the Greek philosophy had a, had a different idea, dualism, that, that I'm made up of two things, that I have a body and I have a spirit, and those two things aren't intricately, permanently connected, um, but that instead my, my spirit uh, is the real me and my body is, you know, 
something that's temporary, something that I, I carry with me through this life. I'm a spirit trapped in a body, or I'm carrying this body you know, like luggage through life, and then at some point I'm going to discard that and go and be the real me again. But the Scripture doesn't present anything like that in the Old or the New Testament. And, and we see that from the very beginning, that you know, God makes Adam, you know, he, he makes something from dirt or from earth, and then he makes it alive. That that's the earliest witness of who we are, not that I'm a spirit plucked out of the, the ether and then given a body, but that I'm dirt made alive. And that that is what we fundamentally are. And we see that played out throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And some of our even discussions of, of heaven and things, the way we look at all of that are things that are going to, to come later. But the, the reason this matters early on is that because when I believe that my body and my spirit are one, that, that this is who I am before God, it means that what I do with my body matters a lot. That what I do with my body is a really big deal. That it's fundamental to the life that I live. And so you see, even in the New Testament, this resistance against some of these Greek ideas that were already kind of creeping into the church, that what we do with our body doesn't really matter. And you see Paul and some of the other New Testament writers beginning to deal with those ideas that, um, you know, well, it's my spirit that stands before God, and so I can just sort of, I can sin with my body as much as I want because none of that really touches who I really am. You know, and what's going to live with God for eternity is just my spirit. And Paul's saying, uh-uh, don't go there. Or on the flip side, seeing our body as something separate that's kind of oppressing our spirit, and so in, in response, we oppress our bodies. That it's, you know, I've got to deny myself all of these things and live this very ascetic lifestyle. Or, you know, centuries later, this plays out even in the idea of, you know, uh, you know, hurting myself in ways that, that I'm, you know, maybe taking too seriously Paul's statement that I beat my body and make it my slave. Um, and, and so we, on either side, the New Testament really pushes back against that idea to say that I am a body. I'm an embodied person. That's how God made me. And Paul would affirm in 1 Corinthians 15 that if there's no bodily resurrection, that we have no hope. That's, that's the whole basis of our hope, is not that Jesus came back as a spirit, and so we get to come back as a spirit. No, people that are spirits and don't have bodies, we don't call them alive. We call them dead. And that's what Paul's saying. It's like if Jesus didn't come back as a physical, living, breathing human being, then we have no hope of that kind of resurrection. And so we have no hope at all. The second period this sub-apostolic period, kind of up until the Reformation, some new thinkers come into the church, and some of these ideas take root in different ways. But, but the general thrust of this, at least in the Western church, is the elevation of celibacy over marriage. The idea of staying celibate becomes sort of the holier path and being married 
and, and having sex, even within that context, sort of becomes a lesser, a lesser path for lesser Christians. It's tied in um, with other things that are going on. The, the idea um, that's still present in some uh, various groups today of, of Mary's perpetual virginity. Not that Mary was a virgin when she had Jesus, but that she stayed a virgin forever, even though she married Joseph, that she never had sex with him because... You know, we begin to sort of rethink in the church what sex really meant. And all of these tied in more to a growing trend of the New Testament being read more and more separate from the Old Testament. And when we read the, when they read the Old Testament, the Old Testament was read differently. It started being read more as, um, uh, more as, as stories that are symbolic. Stories that sort of tell us, you know, things and we're always looking for Jesus and looking for New Testament ideas in the Old Testament rather than sort of letting it stand on its own. There was an idea that, that came out during this time, um, you know, that the, there had always been martyrs, people who had died for their faith and, and, uh, and that was, you know, a high order, you know, people that... Um, that God was going to reward in really specific ways, but they started calling that red martyrdom, talking about blood, and talking about taking a vow of celibacy as white martyrdom. And so you get sort of the same benefits that God honors you in the same way that he would someone that stood up in the face of persecution, but instead I I stood up in the face of this temptation towards the path of of marriage and, and, uh, and sex. And this growing dualism comes in from Greek philosophy. Again, it's, it's the spirit over the body, and I've got to deny my body. And, and there's a whole lot of different people talking, but I, I grabbed a couple of quotes um, just from Jerome, one of those church fathers during that time. Uh, he said things like, Marriage populates the earth, but virginity populates heaven. Um, he said, I praise wedlock, I praise marriage, but it is because they produced me virgins. You know, the, the, this whole idea, these are just sort of necessary evils. He even said at one point to husbands, anyone who is too passionate a lover with his own wife is himself an adulterer. You know, that, that sex was this sort of evil, this necessary evil to be kind of kept in control. And this kind of grows in a lot of ways. And in 1123, the Roman church in the West ends up imposing celibacy on their clergy, that this is to be a a priest or different kinds of orders. You have to be celibate. You can't be married. Though the Eastern church, the Eastern Orthodox church, you know, opposes this idea as, as unbiblical. And I would say there were practical as well as doctrinal reasons for some of these decisions, but they, they certainly grew out of, changing views, because if, uh, if we'd kept sort of the high view of marriage that was present early on, it wouldn't have been tolerated. And then in the Reformation period, so in the 1500s, and you have to remember we're reforming certain aspects of the medieval church. That's what we're reforming. The, the reformers ultimately rejected the demand that the clergy be celibate. They reinstated marriage as an expression of God's grace to us, that it was a good in and of itself, even 
Martin Luther kind of talking about marriage as a spiritual vocation. So, you know, in the medieval period, uh, I could go into a spiritual vocation of being a nun or of being a monk or of being a, you know, there were ways in which I rejected marriage, took a celibate life, and entered into a, a spiritual, a holier vocation than what everyone else did. And the reformers began saying that marriage itself is a spiritual vocation. It's a way of life in which I can serve God and serve his purposes in the world. A way that's equal in value to that single life devoted to ministry. Just different. And there's still a a tremendous diversity of beliefs today uh, in this room. It's one of the things that that we value. If we talked about the the traditions that we've been handed down, spiritual traditions, uh, there would be an incredible diversity Um, But these are just sort of, again, broad generalizations and and main movements. The last era I want to kind of talk about is is the Enlightenment era, because at the same time that the church was going through this Reformation and in some ways reclaiming some of those earlier ideas, society in general is going through a, a huge movement that we call the Enlightenment. And while there's still an ongoing debate in the church today about how to think about sex, the big debate, the important debate, um, is not between Christians, but between the whole Judeo-Christian worldview and the Enlightenment worldview. And that's what our culture is sort of wrapped up in. And some of those ideas are, are even playing out on the national scene and things like this, the, the election last week. You know, the Enlightenment happened a long time ago uh, because we're talking about, you know, the 1500s, the 1600s, these kinds of times. But, but in a lot of ways, the ideas that came out of that are only now being sort of fully realized and lived out. We live in the time of its full application. You know, ideas start really small, but they grow. It's kind of like an acorn that, that ends up becoming a huge oak tree. And that's sort of where we're at with this. We, we can look and see the oak tree uh, of where these ideas came from. One of the, I want to just kind of go over a few key ideas that came out of the Enlightenment. And these are not Christian ideas. They're ideas that, that uh, in a lot of ways stand in opposition. The first, and this is one of your blanks, is the secularization of sex and marriage. The secularization of sex and marriage. You know, the Enlightenment, and secular just sort of means without God, separated from God. And we use that word in in a lot of different ways, some positive, some negative. But what this did was, as the Enlightenment goes on, Christianity more and more is sort of relegated to the fringes of life. Faith is sort of relegated to the fringes of life. It's a private matter. And so what I think about these things coming from my faith, those are private things that I don't share in the public realm. And so in this very public debate and discussion about, uh, about marriage and sex, and especially that's been going on in the last 50 years with the sexual revolution, as these things became much more okay to talk about openly, because there's, remember, you know, it's not too long ago that, you know, couples in TV shows were sleeping in separate twin beds. 
you know. So as, as in our culture it became much more okay to talk about these things, it also became much less okay to talk about my religious beliefs about these things. That that sort of got moved into a private company. I would only talk with people that, you know, share those things. We wouldn't talk about those in public. The problem, of course, being that private faith is sort of an oxymoron in the New Testament. You know, that, that we're to live out our lives in a way that impacts the people around us. Privacy is the next one. You know, privacy is an idea that, that really, in a lot of ways, is so recent and yet so deeply affects our generation. You know, just the whole idea that, that whole extended families used to live in one-room houses. And so, you know, and you kind of imagine that you get married you sleep in the same room with, you know, your brothers and sisters and your parents. And, you know, and so sex was a much more public thing. Our marriages were much more public things. But now, with the advent of bigger houses, you know, uh, it's only in the last few centuries that houses had hallways. You know, before that... Rooms were the hallways. Casey and I just got back from Europe, and that's one of the, the things that stood out to me as we visited these palaces is you're going from room to room, and it's like, and this was the king's bedroom, and then here's the next. It's like, so you had to go through his bedroom to get to the room you would meet with him in? You know, it, we don't think in that way. We invite people over to our houses, and most of them don't ever go in our bedrooms. And so we have a very different way of thinking about some of that. And even things like cars and planes. You know, our ability to travel has allowed sex to become much more private. Illicit affairs become much easier to keep secret. You know, we don't live in a village where everyone sort of knows everyone and knows exactly where I go. I can get in a car and I can drive somewhere where no one knows me and meet up with someone that no one knows and then come back and no one even knows I was gone. And then I can get in a plane and go halfway across the world and do the exact same thing. And so it's really changing the way we think about these things. And of course, with Roe v. Wade, we now even have an idea built into our understanding of our Constitution of a right to privacy. We have certain rights to privacy. And this is not something that you see people talking about very long ago. And then the next blank, Darwin and scientific naturalism. Scientific naturalism. You know, the idea here, the, the key idea is something I would call reductionism. That, that we can understand the world around us if we just sort of reduce it down to its simplest parts. And so we're doing all sorts of things. And, and even on our very campus, you see, uh, you know, here at UTD, uh, this huge movement in nanotechnology, if we can just get down to where we can manipulate the, the atoms themselves, the tiniest building blocks, and of course we sort of keep realizing there are smaller things than what we knew about before, um, but, but if we can get down to the smallest things, we can understand the world around us. And this ultimately leads and has led to us thinking about sex separate from relationship, that we can sort of divorce the idea of sex and relationship. You know, to the point that we even have scientists who hire people to come into their labs 
and hook up sensors to them, and they have sex while people watch so that we can understand the sex act. So we can understand that in new ways. Or, you know, we, we do extensive surveying of people about their sex lives and look at the statistics of all of this. The underlying assumption here is that sexual activity is just normal biology. I listen to a lot of, uh, you know, science radio, and they're always talking about things that we learn about sex from the animal kingdom. And, of course, with uh, the, the, the message that we ultimately got from Darwin that grew from the acorn there is that we're just animals. And so there's nothing fundamentally different in the way that we do sex than from the way the animals do. It's just what we've sort of decided to do, evolved to doing. And if that's all true, then these religious restrictions on sex ultimately just crush our true humanness. You know, that, that I've got, this is who I really am as a biological creature, and any attempt to sort of restrict that is somehow an affront to who I really am, to my identity. At the same time, medical technologies have reduced or eliminated a lot of the consequences of sex. So we've got things like contraceptives that would keep us from getting pregnant. We have abortions in case we do get pregnant. And we have medicines for the sexually transmitted diseases that have emerged and only gotten worse. Of course, the challenge is a lot of these ideas that we can have sex, do sex, whatever, without any consequences, we sort of realized more and more it just doesn't work very well. Those STDs developed resistances, and we found ones that we couldn't cure anyway. You know, we soon realized that we only thought sex could happen without these consequences. It's even 50 years after the sexual revolution and all these movements of free love and redefining and rethinking traditional marriage, you know, people are still, uh, jealous lovers are still murdering people, killing themselves, you know. Sex has a very big power in our lives. Radical feminism came out of this. In a lot of ways, the idea that the only differences between men and women are genital. You know, and, and we kind of realize more and more, and, and even as we study the brain, we're realizing that there are deeper differences than what we once thought or once assumed. Homosexuality came out of the closet and even religiously sort of came out of the closet. We've got new messages about that going on in, in our culture and in our church. The divorce rate skyrocketed. We don't have a, and probably for a whole lot of reasons, but it, it grows during the same time. And we end up with a generation of latchkey kids that didn't grow up with the, the kind of two-parent household uh, that, that their parents grew up with. And that sort of brings us to today. And I think where we are today, uh, in a lot of ways, is confused and reeling. You know, trying to figure out where do we even go? What is the message that we have to our culture? That we as Christians even are so often failing at marriage and sex that what would we have to say to the people around us? <clears throat> 
I want to talk a little bit about the scripture in this. And I, you know, in one sense, I'm like, maybe we should spend the whole time kind of preaching from the scripture. Um, but that's not really what our, our goal is for today. And so I want to kind of lay some ground rules of even using scripture. First thing I want to do is just ask out loud, when you think about this idea of marriage and sex, what are the scriptures that come to mind? What scriptures do we even go to or use? Okay, Ephesians 5, it's a big one. Say Matthew 11, yes? Okay, 1 Corinthians 13. Anyone else? I can't hear. Yeah. Song of Songs, okay, definitely. 1 Corinthians, yeah, there's 7, 11, 13. Yeah, Proverbs 31 is a very big one. I'm going to throw in Genesis 1 and 2. I'm not, um, the Ten Commandments. Uh, certain parts of Leviticus. You know, the, but then when we look at this big thing, we're kind of like limiting ourselves to some pretty small um, chapters. And even some of the ones that maybe we think about quickly... 1 Corinthians 13, we think about why? Because it's read at almost every wedding. But is that a passage about marriage? No, it's a passage about speaking in tongues and how it should be used in the assembly. Does it apply to marriage? Most definitely. It's a powerful message. And that's why we use it. But it's not about that. And I think that's one of the challenges that we have when we come to this is that there's not a whole lot of scriptures that are about marriage or about sex. And so if we do that sort of old, simple thing of like, I want to learn about this, let me flip over to the old concordance here, you know, and find everything the Bible has to say, in a lot of ways it doesn't have to say much. You know, there are dangers for looking for verses on a topic without considering the implications of more core ideas. Or considering the implications of the context. We see that, and it's easy to sort of look back and think, you know, there were verses in uh, both the Old Testament and the New Testament that people in our country used to defend slavery for hundreds of years because they ignored more core ideas. You know, there, there are verses in the Old and the New Testament, but especially in the New, that people have used to sort of keep women in their place for hundreds of years without considering more core ideas. You know, 1 Corinthians uh, 7, for example, is, is a passage directly about marriage. Um, Paul is recommending that everyone stay single. Um, and, and we can use that in some pretty weird ways if we don't consider why. What's he even talking about? And, and relate that to more core ideas. So in one sense, the scripture has very little to say in these matters, but in another sense, it has a tremendous amount to say. Because everything that the scripture says to us about being a disciple, everything that the scripture reveals to us about God's heart has to do with these things. That's where it grows out of. This whole gender thing starts in um, Genesis 1, where we find the very beginnings of marriage and sex and both in the sense of gender and in the sense of um, procreating, it all starts right there with a little statement that we were made, what? 
in his image. That there's something about who he is in himself that started this whole thing going. So it has a tremendous amount to say. The problem is it just may not answer the questions that we want to ask. And we have to sort of uh, rethink our questions, I think, sometimes. The challenge is pulling together a lot of ideas and then building a new theology of our bodies, how we look at our bodies, and of our relationships, and therefore sex and marriage, um, rather than sort of going in piecemeal and trying to get individual answers to our individual questions. I I gave you the reference on the back page um, to another article, not the one I printed to you, one by Anderson, uh, that's talking about this. And... Uh, and how few Christians are really doing this more fundamental work. He says that the best, uh, the best things, uh, best source that he's found of someone actually trying to think through this stuff and what the implications are uh, is work done by Pope John Paul II, and he gives some references and stuff uh, to that if you want to follow up. But he just says it's something that, uh, sadly, uh, very few people are really thinking about or addressing, so we need more of that. But even Genesis, you know, we start with Genesis, they're made, uh, you know, Eve is made as this suitable helper in, in Genesis 2. They come together, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they'll be one flesh. All these kinds of things, right where it starts, probably tells us more about gender and points to marriage, but very little about sex the way we use the word. I think we assume a lot about sex. The problem, of course, being that uh, even in Genesis, um, you know, before God finds the helper, if we want to read something sexual into that, Adam gets to try all the animals first. So that kind of leads us to some weird places if this is a sex passage. Exodus, in, in the Ten Commandments, gives us the main two restrictions that are placed around sex. You know, the first one is don't commit adultery, and the second one is don't covet your neighbor's wife. And those seem very limited to us, but I think we have to remember that we can't picture a society like ours with lots of single people. You know, this was a world in which, you know, pretty soon after you hit puberty, someone would have arranged you a marriage and put you together. And so almost all of the restrictions around sex are really based around married people. And that leaves us as singles. So many of us, you know, we hit puberty a lot of years ago, and so many of us aren't going to get married for a lot of years yet. And it leaves us in sort of a weird limbo trying to find verses that speak directly to ours. And then, of course, Leviticus is going to build those couple restrictions out in some different directions in what we would call the holiness code. And it's going to place various restrictions around, uh, around sex. Song of Songs is a weird one um, to try and use. And, and I've seen this over and over again. There are quite a, a number of popular series on relationships, sex, dating, you know, out of the Song of Songs. But I would raise some cautionary flags to us using that as our main text. Um, You know, it is definitely a book about the power of sex and the power of 
sort of what we would call falling in love, this sort of infatuated uh, romantic love. But in the book, the two people aren't married, and there's no guarantee, and we know this from watching the culture around us, that such infatuation means that they're well-suited to life together. There's no guarantee of happiness. You know, the, the, the book we attribute to Solomon, and we think of it in one sense because of his wisdom, but was Solomon a success in love and marriage? No, in some ways he's probably one of the greatest failures in the Scripture in that area. It's a sad story. And there are even some greater challenges uh, than that when you, uh, because there are, are uh, theologians and, and Bible translators that struggle with some of the ways, uh, you know, we read through, especially in the NIV, and it splits it all into two speakers, lover and beloved, you know, and so you've got these two people and it tells you who's talking, but none of that's in the original text, and people question whether there may or may not be more people speaking in that. Uh, the main two, is, a, is it a two-person story or a three-person story? And that deeply changes the message that we get from it in some key ways. So while we might celebrate this kind of falling in love that we see there, it creates problems because what happens when we fall for someone who can't or won't marry us? Maybe they can't because they're already married. Maybe they won't because they didn't fall in love back. What happens when a married person falls for someone other than their spouse? You know, that's we see that. So many of us have been touched by that. So I, I would just say there's no great reason to use this book to provide our general doctrine on sexuality, especially within marriage, because it doesn't even address sex within marriage. And Song of Songs basically says nothing about noble qualities of the soul basically says nothing about who we are inside. It's, it's all physical. And contrast that with another passage we said, Proverbs 31, the, the description of the ideal wife, which basically ignores physical beauty, except to say that it's deceptive and fleeting. The mother that's writing here appeals not to her son's sex drive, but to his capacity for wisdom in who he should select as a mate. Paul in Ephesians 5, I I would say the same thing, such a key passage. Um, But Ephesians 5 starts with a few key words that we often sort of miss as we skip ahead to those later verses about husbands and wives. You know, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. And the love that he's addressing here is not eros, that erotic, romantic love, but agape. A love of the will. A love that lives in submission, as he would say later, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, before he starts giving any specific instructions to different people. And this agape brings a different meaning to sex, even sex between spouses. C.S. Lewis talks about eros being as powerful as a god. You know, the way that it just sort of comes on us, it's almost a religious experience, this sort of falling in love thing. 
But he says it still needs to live under the lordship of the one true God. He's known, one of his famous quotes is, he says, love, having become a God, becomes a demon. You know, that when you give love that kind of power in your life, it it only serves evil. Okay, I want to take just about two minutes here for you, uh, just based on some of the things that we've talked about so far, to share with a neighbor. What's one thing that stood out to you, uh, one key idea so far that, that you want to kind of ponder or take with you? All right, rethinking our terms. Um, that was the thing as I started studying this more and more and reading all these different people is I'm realizing that they use these words, the same words in different ways. And one of the things that God has really been teaching me this year and that sort of keeps getting driven home in a lot of areas of life is this idea that language matters. The way I say things matters. What I mean by that matters So I want to challenge how we use certain words, how we think about certain words. I remember my freshman year here at UTD, I had this ethics class, and I'm like thinking, that'll be interesting to me. But I had this this, uh, literature professor teaching it, and he did not want to teach ethics. Um, That was not his topic. He was assigned clearly to do this. So he decided that he would just teach a literature class and kind of give this nod to ethics, by saying we were talking about how authors choose the right or wrong words to use when they write. Um, So we read Romeo and Juliet, which I think would be an amazing work to discuss ethics in, Um, but all we really talked about was how most of the statements were sexual innuendos, and that was an eye-opening experience as a college freshman. I was like, I've read this before, and I did not see that in there. But, you know, over the years, I've realized more and more that, not that I think he was on the right track, but I I think there is um, great, maybe, ethical power in the words that we choose. I remember uh, Abu Minar is a guy that, um, he's done some things with us before, um, but he spends his life mostly ministering to to Hindus and Muslims. He's a, a convert from Hinduism himself. And he told me a story about one time he had spoken at an event as a Christian and this young uh, Muslim guy came up to him afterwards um, and and kind of said, are you a Christian? And he's like, well, duh. I mean, I just spoke at this Christian event, you know. And he said, but the Spirit kind of told me, you know, don't don't answer that. You know, and so he just asked back. He said, well, what do you think a Christian is? And he went on to describe this very negative political, you know, view that someone who maybe grew up in, a, in the Middle East would have, their definition of Christian. And he said, then no, I'm not. And he said, but if you want to go have coffee, I can tell you what I am. And then he realized that this word, Christian, to this guy had all these meanings and it didn't, they wouldn't have communicated the same way. So he wasn't denying Christ. He was denying being something that he wasn't. And I've thought about that a lot. I, I remember I was interested in this in high school. I did this, we had to do this thing called an extended essay. Um, and it was this long, you know, year and a half research project. And I have no idea where I came up with this topic. Um, but I came up with how does language affect our perceptions of reality? And I probably disagree with most of my conclusions 
in that now. But that question got in my head years ago. I remember just reflecting on even the story in, in Genesis 11 of the Tower of Babel. And what was it, you know, that the Genesis observes not just that they couldn't understand what each other were saying, but that they didn't understand each other anymore. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, language, vocabulary gives us new ways of thinking about things. We can think about things we couldn't even think about before. I remember hearing someone talk about Helen Keller and asking her about her life before she learned the language. And it's kind of like, I don't know. You know, what, how do you even think about it? How do you even process what you're going through except in the vaguest of impressions? We all think in words. Even people that are deaf think in sign language. One of the best sources for this, and I can't recommend this highly enough. It's not about sex, but it is about language. Um, radio Lab is a, a radio show. It's all one word, and I gave you the reference. And they have one on words. And, and, and they do a lot of this stuff about, uh, especially about deaf people that don't learn to speak uh, any sort of language until they're adults and their ability to process life and think about life and really not even having many memories of their first decades of life because they have no words to think about it. And I say all that just to say, you know, words are powerful. We come to college and we go into a field and we don't even know the lingo yet. We don't even know the words for our field yet. And the more that you learn the terms and the phrases and the way we talk about things, the more you can think more deeply about your field, the more you can understand when other people talk about your field. It just opens new horizons. And I think one of the challenges that we have as Christians in trying to communicate something to our culture is that we don't even really understand each other when we talk about these things. We use these words differently. We use them loosely, and uh, it creates some real challenges. So we need healthy language to even think in healthy ways about all of this stuff, much less offer something to our culture. So I want to look at a few kind of key words here. Sexuality. Um, as simple as this word seems, uh, this is probably the one that, that came up most in my study as being problematic. Uh, the word itself is very new. According, according to the compact Oxford English Dictionary, the word sex, in, in the sense of having sex, doesn't appear in English until 1929. Um, while sex uh, as in gender, starts back in, in more like 1651. That's when you see sex and sexual showing up. But sexual, that word describing human behavior, doesn't show up until 1888. So sexual is a gender thing or as a, you know, uh, a sense of male and female a long time ago. Sexual describing something that I do, 1888. Um, sexuality shows up for human behavior and feelings in 1879. So all this is less than 150 years ago that some of these words are starting to get used. You know, the transition from sexuality as gender to sexuality talking about my sex drive redefines the way we think about a lot of things. 
As I said earlier, when God made Eve in Genesis 2, he's looking for a suitable helper and starts looking among the animals. And to read that as a story of Adam's sexual longing, you know, that was what was not good, creates some real problems in that text. The Bible creates, you know, has no Hebrew or Greek word that could be translated sexuality. But now we talk easily about a biblical understanding of sexuality um, or the biblical view of sexuality. And while that may be helpful, the danger of those kinds of new concepts is always that we would be tempted to interpret Scripture in light of our new ideas rather than the other way around. So we bring that. We, We go looking for verses on sexuality, starting with our own assumptions about what that is. And today, we use sexuality rarely to sort of talk about gender and mostly to talk about sort of the sum total of all my desires for sex. You know, that that's what we're sort of getting at with that word. And these desires are also expressed through different parts of our personality. And so we, we talk about um, sexuality has been tied now to identity, We have a sexual identity or, and I even hear this in sermons and things, that we see ourselves as sexual beings, sexual beings. And that's a term that gets used in the church. And once I'm defined as a sexual being, in other words, if my sexual desires somehow define who I am as a person, then it becomes a violation of my humanness and my personhood to ask me, to refrain from expressing who I am by living out all my desires. Be they heterosexual, in the case maybe I can't find a spouse, I haven't found someone to marry me, or as a Christian I have a conviction that I should only marry a Christian and I can't find a Christian spouse. It's not 50-50 male-female in the church today. You know, and so somehow we're just denying an essential part of who we are if we can't live out our sexual desires. And of course, that also plays out in areas of homosexuality and other different sex, sexual drives. And so in light of Scripture, and this is your next blank, I think it's important that we see ourselves as choosing beings rather than sexual beings. As choosing beings rather than sexual beings. Jonathan Mills, and this is one of the books I reference a number of times, um, and I have a copy up here for you to look at. It's a very, very interesting book. Um, he says our choices for good or evil with what is given us are what we are before God. Our choices express who we are as human beings since every human action, including any action involving sexuality, requires a choice. We might say that a choice that I make expresses my sexuality But it's the choice rather than my sexuality that expresses who I really am in front of God. Or, and this is your next blank, I could say that it's in my heart and not in my sexuality that I think and decide how to live. It's in my heart and not my sexuality that I think and decide how to live. So people often refer, and and we use this word 
as well, I think in unhealthy ways, to sexual needs, it's important to remember that sex is not a need, that's your blank, like food or water. We can live without it. And we have the ability in all areas for self-mastery and self-restraint. I think we also have a problem because, and Jonathan Mills says this as well, we use the term sexuality in completely incoherent ways. In other words, we want to sort of have it both ways. So sometimes we're utterly cynical and we emphasize the fallenness of all human sexuality. We look at all these problems and issues. But the next minute, we're celebrating sexuality as though the fall never happened. And we talk as though we still experience our sexuality as one of God's most wonderful, happiness-bringing, and inherently meaning-laden gifts to us. And so we talk in, you know, sort of out of both sides of our mouths about this, probably because at times we experience both of those things. The fall has touched every part of me. There's no doubt. We talk about that a lot in our ministry with the idea that... that the fall has touched even our emotions. It's a message that our culture and especially our generation needs to hear because we've sort of redefined authenticity to mean being true to whatever I feel at the moment. But, but the biblical idea of the fall is that our, our fall into sin touches every part of who we are. Not that we're totally corrupt. That's not what that idea of total depravity that Calvin talked about meant. Uh, what it meant is that it, it touches the totality of our being. There's not some little reserved part of me that stayed perfectly holy. And so I can always just follow my heart because that's going to lead me down the right path. And the same thing with sex. I can't just sort of follow my sex drive because it's this little pure, you know, pristine piece of my character and the rest of this stuff is where sin happens. So the falls touched every part of me, even our sexuality. And is anyone surprised by that? We live in this world. You know, so we talk sometimes in the church, and I hear these discussions about sexuality as this gift from God. And, and yet I think a lot of us, we realize that it's not like most other gifts. You know, people are gifted with music ability, but we don't have 12-step programs for music addicts. You know? We can talk about celebrating our sexuality, you know, but we don't celebrate it like we might celebrate great hand-eye coordination or something. You know, it's, it's not this thing that we just feel this great sense of joy over. So if it's a gift, it's a different sort of gift. And I would just make the point, and this is your next blank, that the Bible neither glorifies nor demonizes sex neither glorifies nor demonizes sex. It's not all good and it's not all bad. I think the scripture sees sex as a part of life that's problematic at times and that needs boundaries around it in order to find its full meaning. That only within certain boundaries can sex really live out its purpose. And I think Ronnie will address just the whole idea of boundaries later. Not as a negative thing, that is a positive thing. Jonathan Mills sort of 
quotes C.S. Lewis here, and I was trying to kind of think how to combine a lot of ideas. But he just says that C.S. Lewis wisely observes in so many places in his works, common sense shows us that sex is too much a way of foolishness for us to celebrate it in the, high, or the tones of high worship. Venereal desire, so think venereal disease, we're talking about sex here, is neither the highest thing in man nor the most wicked. There's no call for a return to any identification of such desire with sinfulness, going back to that middle period we talked about earlier. But equally, there is also no call for us to begin naively jumping up and down in praise of our sex drives as guides to our happiness, still less that the scriptures teach us to celebrate our sex drives. And so a lot of those are just sort of modern ideas that we've brought to the term. And I think the big thing that I would leave you with on this term of sexuality is just its very problematic nature. That it's not something that the scripture addresses, or if it addresses, it doesn't address it in that way. And that just by using those kinds of words, we bring a set of assumptions about what they mean. And that that creates an issue for us. All right, I want you to take just about two minutes here to discuss that one in pairs. All right, we're on the home stretch here of what I want to share tonight. Um, I want to talk about marriage. Um, this word, in some ways, I think uh, we, okay, we kind of know what marriage is, but this is something that our, our culture is in a process of redefining. We have votes now in various states of what? Defining marriage as this or defining marriage as that because we understand that the definition affects the way that we you know, sort of do marriage in our culture. And so this is a big one. Jonathan Mill says, yes, marriage is a troubled institution, but marriage has always been a troubled institution. You know, and I think that's such an, a valuable reminder to us because I, I think it's tempting to sort of think back on the good old days, you know, when everything was wonderful, you know, when the divorce rate was really low and not think about the fact that that was because women had no rights, you know, couldn't leave even if they were being abused, mistreated, you know what I'm saying? It's that, that marriage has always been troubled. We live in a fallen world, and so we shouldn't be surprised if it's troubled in new ways. He does go on to sort of remark that marriage is still the best thing going. His focus is on men, um, going for men as they try to find how to live their lives. Every study I'm aware of indicates that married men are much healthier, both mentally and physically, than unmarried men. Uh, and, and there are a lot of studies on that. I sat with a guy... Um, just a, a few weeks ago, a uh, really successful business guy, and he was asking, he's like, yeah, do you know any young guys that are looking to get started in, in uh, you know, the industry? I'm looking for some great guys, preferably married. It's, and I just kind of laughed because, and, and we talked about that. He's like, they're just, they're more stable, they're more healthy, they're more, you know, it's like he wants that because he sees that in his business even. Okay, marriage. There's an idea in our culture and this is the one I want to go after. Um, and even in Christian culture that I think has linked marriage and sex in new ways. Obviously, marriage and sex have always been linked. But how is that link formed? I think marriage has gone from being a covenant where sex can find its full meaning, where sex is safe and protected, where a family can be started and raised, and now we see it more and more as an expression of who we are sexually or an expression of my sexuality. 
Or we might, from a, you know, a Christian viewpoint, say even an expression of heterosexuality. And this all comes along with greater individual choice that we have in our, in our culture, in our society. Um, as falling in love leads us into, and of course out of, marriage more frequently than it ever has before in the history of the world. That wasn't nearly as much of a concern because people didn't have those kind of choices. So marriage has become, in our minds a lot of times, an expression of our personal sexuality. We see it in the way we talk about heterosexual marriage, but perhaps even more starkly in the way that marriage is being redefined in the debate about whether same-sex couples should be allowed to marry. You know, that, that if marriage is an expression of our sexuality and sexuality is this key component of my identity that defines who I am, we see how that plays out. Language matters. The way we use words changes the way we think about things. Because of our biology and because of our fallenness, I would say that we may not always be allowed to express our sex drives in marriage. And that's your next blank. This is my assertion. I think often because of who we are biologically and what we would desire to do and because of how the fall has changed my motives and and my will, marriage is not going to always allow us to express our sexuality. Rather, through what the scriptures call our heart, we choose to transcend our sex drives. Through what the scriptures call our heart, we choose to transcend our sex drives for the sake of love, meaning, and belonging. So why not an expression of my sexuality or an expression of our heterosexuality? Why not use that definition? You know, first off, I think there's some common sense problems. You know, if marriage is meant to be an expression of my sexuality, what happens when, as a married man, I meet someone other than my wife who I'm more attracted to? What happens when a couple can't have sex for a time? They're married, that's the only person, but uh, maybe because of distance. You know, in our economy today, there are more and more uh, couples that are having to live apart for chunks of time. You know, I, I heard a radio show on it just a couple of weeks ago, people commuting to other cities for months at a time just because that's the only place they can find a job, that they don't want to uproot their kids and all this stuff. Maybe because of medical conditions, maybe because of conflict in the relationship, but for some reason I'm not able to sort of live out my sex drive, so does that make the marriage then a sham? Because marriage is my, an expression of my sexuality. I think this view ends up excluding broad swaths of society from biblical marriage. You know, such as those who have different sex drives. And and I don't just mean in this homosexual uh, sex drive debate, but also there are just some people that don't have much desire for sex. They're not very interested. I've encountered some of those students. Usually it's the ones that everyone else is calling a liar, you know, um, because we just can't imagine that there would be people that don't want, you know, or desire this in as much as or in the same way that, that we do. But, you know, so if I just have an incredibly low sex drive but still want to 
have a family, and there's more to marriage than sex. And so it creates problems. I think it's a problem because as singles, we may imagine that sex plays a much bigger role in marriage than it typically does. David Letterman a while back was interviewing an actor who'd been married for like 20 years, and he was asking him about movies and his life and, and a comparison. And the guy just said, in the movies, life is mostly about sex and occasionally about children. Married life is mostly about children and occasionally about sex. You know, fully express the way a biologist understands it. I would say that heterosexuality may be more likely to dissolve a marriage than to bind us to one mate for life. You know, as a result of the sexual revolution, some men and women began abandoning their spouses using the justification that their marriage wasn't sexually fulfilling or had become sexually boring. And this is just one more consequence of the idea of marriage as an expression or celebration of sexuality. And so in one sense, marriage is sometimes more a restraint of both spouses' sexuality than an expression of it. We restrict ourselves to one partner, regardless of circumstances, regardless of how happy or fulfilled we are at the moment, regardless of who we find most attractive at the moment, regardless of what our sex drives are driving us to do. And I would say this, is, this understanding is even more important for those who come to marriage from you know, uh, more sexually experienced backgrounds, to put it nicely. You know, I, I've talked to some people about some of these ideas that came to marriage. They were a virgin when they got married, and so they do see marriage as this celebration of their sexuality. It's much easier to buy that definition because it's like, oh, this is great. You know, this is something new. Um, but for others of us, that's not the path that we come to marriage from. And so we experience it more as a problematic or restrictive thing. And some of the way the church talks about this stuff, we're like, I don't know who they're talking about, but it, it doesn't apply to me. When a man expresses who he is as a sexual being, this is Jonathan Mills, the result is never monogamous marriage but such things as adultery, serial fornication, casual sex, pornography, and the hiring of prostitutes. And that's what we're hearing from all of our evolutionary biologists. If that's what we are, you know, then this is, this is what's natural to us. And biblical marriage is more a restriction of that than it is a celebration of it. In addition, in our culture, there is an insane exaltation of beauty. That's what I called it. Insane exaltation. That's your next... I don't remember who I got that from, but I liked it. But, you know, the problem is that even averagely attractive people seem disappointing to those of us who've been bombarded by the stunningly beautiful people on TV and in movies. You know, who we're comparing our, you know, ourselves and each other's to um, is just ridiculous. And that is a consequence of technology. You know, there was a time in life where the, 
the most attractive person you'd ever see is someone that kind of lived around you. You know, and now we have people who literally it's their job to search the globe for the most beautiful people that there are and then show them to us all the time. (laughs) You know, pornography only heightens the problem. But when a man learns to appreciate that noble woman of Proverbs 31, regardless of her looks, we might say that he's transcending his sexuality, not expressing it. You know, I hear sometimes in these dating talks, people will use uh, Jacob and Rachel from, from uh, Genesis as this great example. We, we like any story where there's sort of a one, the one. It's like a, we're looking for a modern-day romance in the Scripture. We usually leave Leah, his other wife, out of that equation. <laughs> And I would say that in typical Hebrew narrative fashion, which means it doesn't tell us much other than just kind of what happened. It leaves the value judgments to us that we have to think about. The narrator tells us very little. But I would say we're left to consider whether Leah or Rachel was actually the better wife. Which one was nobler? Which one had more to offer to him? It's a question we often don't wrestle with. I think the fear of commitment that many men experience today doesn't result from a lack of sexuality, but rather from the fact that in marriage my sexuality has to become subordinated to a relationship of friendship and partnership. You know, it's not the ones with the most powerful sex drives that are driven the most quickly into marriage. Sometimes it's the very opposite. I would say that a couple's identity as married is not an erotic identity, but an identity in covenant and intentional purposes that has an erotic dimension. So being married isn't an erotic identity, it's a covenant identity that has all of these different dimensions, including belonging, friendship, raising a family. And over time, I do think, because of the way culture and economy and society and all these things move, I think the balance of those things shifts. There is no doubt that in our economy today, the friendship part of marriage is probably more important than ever before. You know, because so often, because of jobs and work and things, we are uprooted. And the only person that I can sort of count on being with for the rest of my life, theoretically, is my spouse. We may leave everyone else. And so that friendship becomes even more important than maybe it used to be. So while the Bible teaches that sex should be kept within marriage, I don't think it teaches that that marriage is the expression of the desire for sex. 1 Corinthians 7, 9, it says it's better to marry than to burn with passion. You know, might imply that sex is a good reason to get married in general, but that doesn't mean that sex then defines what that marriage is. And I also, as I told the, uh, the UNT group the other night, I don't, think it's a, I don't think it's written to or about dating couples. It's written to the church about reasons to get married or reasons not to get married. 
So if we are choosing beings, as I argued earlier, then marriage is the expression of an ongoing set of choices of how I live. I enjoyed um, one of the things, Jonathan Mills ends his book by sort of contrasting some different scriptures, some of the these Christian writers sort of celebrating the sexual aspect of marriage and um, in what he thinks are unrealistic ways. And then he goes to Friedrich Nietzsche, who's one of the greatest critics of Christianity. And he says, I think he has it more right. Marriage is a long conversation. When marrying, you should ask yourself this question. Do you believe you're going to enjoy talking to this woman into your old age? Everything else in marriage is transitory, but most of the time that you're together will be devoted to conversation. It's like, there's some, some wisdom there. And the last one that I want to address very briefly is just the idea of heterosexuality and homosexuality. Again, these words are pretty new. Um, they show up as adjectives, being heterosexual, homosexual, uh, in 1892. And uh, homosexuality shows up as a noun in 1912. And heterosexuality shows up as a noun in 1920. These are new ways of thinking about sexuality. I would argue that perhaps it would be more helpful to talk about experiencing a desire for sex with attractive women versus experiencing a desire to, uh, for sex with attractive men. Remembering how lookist and ageist we can be. In other words, we're attracted to attractive young people. That's the sex drive. Perhaps especially with men. And also remembering that we're dealing with a complex spectrum. Sexuality is not a simple thing. And too often in our culture, we've started talking about it as if it's a binary system. You know, it's either or, one or the other. I have one of the guys that... Um, I mentored for years and, and did his wedding a few years ago. And he's like talking about some ministry he was doing. He said, I've, I think I've realized that, you know, there's, it's not heterosexual or homosexual, but that you've got this scale of, you know, one to 100. And he said, and if one's heterosexual and, and 100 homosexual, he said, I don't think I'm a one. And he's very, he told me this in front of his wife, happily married. He's like, maybe I'm a 10. I don't know. But just realizing that this is a much more complex thing. I think we end up problems because these words have become identity words whether, rather than descriptive words. We come into all sorts of problems the same way that we come into problems when sexuality itself becomes an identity word, who I am, rather than words that describe who I am or describe parts of me. And, and I just wanted to kind of give a nod here before I turn it over to Ronnie for about 15 minutes before dinner. Um, this, this Jonathan Mills book, Love, Covenant, and Meaning, um, I, I kind of came to it. Uh, number one, I heard about it because of uh, Rick Watts actually mentions it in his New Testament Foundations class. So a lot of you have probably heard of it before, but maybe didn't catch it. Um, but uh, And as I started kind of looking into it and finding different people talking about it, uh, so many people were saying it's like one of the best books or the best book on marriage that I've ever read. But it's really not a book about marriage. Uh, he has a basic thesis, and I, I kind of put it here, something that he's arguing. And this sort of sums some of it up. 
He says, if we're realistic enough to recognize that marital friendship and partnership can't really be constructed from male heterosexuality, in other words, marriage isn't the expression of our heterosexualness, why do we assume that, quote, homosexual men lack the capacity for marriage to a woman? In the first place, men and women should not identify themselves by the orientation of their venereal drives. It would be a good thing if the terms heterosexual and homosexual dropped from our Christian and secular vocabulary. Shouldn't we at least be asking whether the transcending of venereal desire that marriage requires of a mostly or entirely heterosexual man who marries for the sake of love, friendship, and raising a family isn't more or less the same as the transcendence required of a man whose venereal desire is oriented mostly or entirely toward men? but who restrains those drives and who marries for the sake of love, friendship, and raising a family. Of course, men with little venereal desire for women can't proceed towards marriage driven by such desire. For them, marriage must develop from friendship. But wouldn't it be better if all marriages developed from friendship? So I'm not arguing for his view, but I, I do, uh, you know, some of you may be more interested in, in uh, reading what he has to say it is a lesson in quotation marks. He's, every sentence has something in quotes because he's trying to, to make us rethink our language. Um, and, and I think that's a challenge that, that there are a number of people in our community that are facing. Um, that, you know, based on all sorts of, uh, you know, probably biology, things that have happened in our lives, maybe things that were done to us, that, you know, sex drives are, are complicated. And I think the question that our our culture and that even our Christian culture is still so wrapped up in is a question of, you know, is homosexuality wrong? Or is, you know, and we're still on this moral question, though I think in general we have some consensus. And I, I find very few writers, uh, very few people thinking beyond that of the pastoral questions. You know, so if it's wrong, what are we going to do? You know, this is a reality in a lot of people's lives. It's something that's that's touching us deeply from various angles, um, you know, from friends, from family members, and maybe from our own heart. And I think these uh, things we've talked about today have some pretty big implications for that. All right, Ronnie, I'm going to give you 15 minutes, and then we will go. Ronnie's going to come up, and I asked him, I wanted to kind of do more of the the theory portion of this, but I asked him to dig in, you know, based on some of these ideas, based on other ideas, rethinking what it means to prepare ourselves for marriage and sex and to get a little bit practical with us. Well, I was laughing with uh, Gilda because of Brandon's quote, which was a good quote about marriage not having much to do with sex. And I said, well, you know, especially... It's going to become more about kids if it was about sex at some point a lot. And um, no birth control is perfect. Gilda, I think, has eight kids, and I have seven, I think. I'm not sure. I, I lost track. <laughs> I think we lost a couple along the way. I, remember, I know four of their names anyway. Um, and I'm 60, so I don't know much about sex anymore. But uh, but I once did. I once did. So I did some reading, some real practical things. 
mainly from things written by promiscuous college students, but <laughs> now nah, I'm playing with you here. Rethinking about preparing marriage and sex, I have caught more hell over this subject in my 38 years of ministry than anything else, um, because I've been rethinking it for 38 years. Um, I remember lying awake when I was five years old listening to my dad talking ugly to my mother. Now, I was the youngest of eight kids, so I've had a rink-side seat to life since I was a little bitty boy. Um, I remember when I was three, I can remember back, I remember taking a bath in a sink one time. I was 15. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the... Uh, I have a lot of vivid memories, and and I think uh, I have always been very articulate in and into words and liking words, and I think that's part of why I remember a lot of things. And I remember I have these little pictures, so I remember a lot about that. I remember uh, when I was three, not having my own bed in the house. There were eight kids in a in a three bedroom house back to what uh, Brandon was talking about. And I didn't have my own bed. And I remember wandering around. When you wander around in a house of nine other people, you learn a whole lot of stuff. You see a lot of stuff. You hear a lot of things. When you're the youngest, people don't think you know what's being said. You know a heck of a lot more about it. I see some nods. I know you know what I'm talking about. Because... You learn to be subtle and you learn to listen and and you survive that way. Uh, So I have been thinking about this. And so much of my ministry has been about trying to talk to college students and teenagers about this subject. And and it's uh, it's not well received generally because everybody is a specialist on this. And so if you don't like it, you can run and tell your parents and they are. Because they've dated once in their life and they've counseled one person and that's you. And so they're very schooled about this. But I'll tell you, I've spent 38 years very intensely, more than anybody talking to young men. Now, I talk to young women, but you know the boundaries are much um, tougher there. I'm very careful about counseling young women about sexuality, but, but I do talk to them. My wife and I have talked to them. And I talk to those people that talk to young women and help them learn how to talk about it. Um, and so I've looked in the lives of lots of young people. I've heard the stories. I've counseled kids all the way down to... I counseled a little boy just about a year and a half ago uh, that's uh, six... That's six, and and he already has homosexual tendencies as we would look at it. He's already thinking homosexual thoughts. So I've got a window into people. Um, I've counseled lots of teenagers, lots of college students, lots of people in pre-engagement, pre-marital, early marital, all the way up to old people. Uh, about marriage and about the sexuality stuff that Brandon talked about. You need to really listen to what Brandon's talking about. Let me tell you something here. 
The church has swung back and forth in this, as he was showing you early on. Right now, the way the church is trying to heal the marital woes is by idolizing it. By, by glamorizing it. By talking about it in these glowing terms that, that are just as unreal as anything else. And, and you, you kind of look at that and it builds some expectations. Well, how you prepare for it is going to be based on your expectations. So I've just put a few statements here together. I'm not going to spend much time on a few of them. These are really notes. Um, as, as I was waiting for uh, Brandon and his team to finish their preparation, um, I knew that given, you know, the four hours that he was giving me tonight... Uh, that I would not be able to cover a whole lot. But I just, this, the whole point of pizza theology, my wife is calling this pizzaology today. I, I still can't get that out of my mind. It's going to just ruin me now. Pizzaology, I thought. Hmm. That's probably what a lot of college students are, though. Pizzaologists. I don't know. I studied it a lot when I was a college student. Way too much, I think. Um, but yeah, I, uh, the, the point here is to get you to think. It really is not to give you all the answers. So don't hear me trying to give you all the answers either as though I have them. Because I think the ultimate answers are in God. But, but to get you to think again, because I'm going to tell you that I think a lot of the suppositions about dating and marriage in today's church stink. They just stink. They're sorry. And, and that's just my particular point of view. And you can go tell everybody that I'm negative and I hate Christians. I don't, I don't either of those, but. But uh, I, I do uh, believe in thinking. So the first thing I want to say about rethinking, preparing, preparing for marriage and sex is that since marriage is a covenant designed, joined, and governed by God, the all-surpassing fundamental preparatory activity for it is developing and growing in one's faith in God. You know, when, the, when, a, when a world without God tries to do marriage, how the heck do you expect them to know anything about it? What would you expect if someone wanted to play basketball and they saw a basketball in a court and went out and started playing, seen anybody play, didn't know the rules, how do you think they would be at it? How long do you think they would last in a game? If they have confused football with basketball and so they think you've tackled somebody. <laughs> they wouldn't last very long. That's why the Christian model for a world is crazy. It's just crazy. And yet that's what we're dealing with. And we talk about the breakdown of marriage. I don't know when it was ever fixed. That's what he was pointing out. You look in history... If man has fallen, marriage has fallen, like everything else. But we're trying to glamorize it as some ideal state. You're never going to reach that ideal state. Jesus uh, answered that when they came and 
to test him and said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's a whole another conversation within itself. But what he, he recited is back to the Genesis story. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. And then he throws in this statement, Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, some of our problem in the Christian community is called fundamentalism. Most of us are infected by it. Some of you perhaps aren't, and good for you. Fundamentalism is this view that has taken over evangelical America that the Bible was divinely dictated and, and if you went to a church that you ever heard anybody say in any fashion, I believe the whole Bible from the table of contents to maps, you are a fundamentalist. Now, I believe that God has delivered us the Bible. I was taught fundamentalism. You want to argue it? I know all the verses. I know it. But let me just give you a bit of a challenge here. Just in Genesis 1 and 2. We've got God creating the earth in six days. Then he comes back and explains in Genesis chapter 2 that on the day that God made man, he didn't make the man and woman, he just made the man first. And then that man spent the whole first day naming all the animals and then trying to pick out a helper for him. Now that was, that was remember fundamentalism, it was a 24-hour day. So he has, he is naming all the animals and trying to pick out a helper. Now, are we assuming that that helper was to be his sexual mate? Were all the animals only male at that point? What are we dealing with here? Well, the Bible was not written as a prescription for that. And so when we go back to something that doesn't reveal that stuff to us and try to make it reveal something it doesn't do, we read stuff into the text and then we really get screwed up. We're looking for a prescription where there's really not a prescription. It's, it's this poetic description that God made it. I believe the Bible was inspired. I believe Genesis was inspired, just not dictated that way. Or written so that it's to be read literally every place. Most of the time, if you just think just a little bit, you can see it's not literal. And we do that in things like poetry and music. But then we come to Scripture and it's like, no, it's got to be literal. That's all about control, I think. But you've got this story here that is trying to express something to us as though man needed a helper, but woman doesn't. And you certainly see that written in kind of the descriptions of the world around them to say God made it and God designed it. But the point is, is that God designed it, He joined people together, and He gave us brains. But too many times we read the Scripture and we forget He gave us brains to think about things. And so we don't think, and too many times we as Christians get on the backside of things, and then that's what people see as our backsides. 
But the point is, to grow is to first grow in faith in God, not to figure everything out about God. I don't know how God does anything. But we've been taught I've got to understand, and our theologians sit and they've got it all figured out somewhere, and they talk in deep voices, and we've got it all figured out. They don't got got nothing figured out. They're reading the same Bible that you are. I'm I'm really not trying to be negative here. I am trying to shake you from the mentality that somebody somewhere has all the answers. And only God does. And the point is, trust God. Don't trust me. Don't trust focus. Don't trust your denomination. Trust God. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God, not his pastor. And if you're listening to a pastor, listen for God in him or her, not some person. Otherwise, you're going to get warmed over stuff. When, when they ask Jesus in his Bread of Life sermon, what must we be doing to do the works God requires of us? He said, here's what God wants out of you. Believe in the one he has sent. Believe in Jesus. I was telling Gildup that it was so refreshing hearing a single person talk about marriage and sex. Part of this glamorization is there's some secrets in the bedroom. Guys, dogs can figure out the sex act. It's not complicated. The problem is not figuring out the mechanics of sex. The problem is figuring out to care about the other person. Enough that it's not about you getting off. It's not about you proving your prowess or your femininity. Like you're some wad, he-man ape. I don't know, but that's what we get into. Most of the problems that I counsel are people who are mean. I had one guy that had told his wife that she wasn't as good in bed as some of the other women he had had sex with. Boy, that really warmed her up. They're divorced. All the king's horses and all the king's men, with me included, couldn't keep that one together. How do you get over that as a woman? How do you deal with that? This is a beautiful woman, I might add. This is a beautiful, talented woman. This is a very handsome, stupid man. Well, see, the work is this believing in Jesus. If you get Jesus right, everything else becomes so much simpler. But we don't get Jesus right. But see, it's, it's what the Hebrew writer says. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. Now, does that only apply to God somewhere? Or does that apply to life? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He'll make your path straight. Do you believe that? You don't see that. But do you believe that? That's Proverbs 3, 5. You know, do you believe that? You don't see it, but do you believe that God can take care of tomorrow? Jesus, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do you believe that? You can't see tomorrow, but do you believe because of God that it's going to be okay? 
And okay doesn't mean fun. It means purposeful. It means right. It means useful. It means another step on the way to your, your ultimate glorification with God. See, faith, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why? Because God is the God of heaven that's speaking through the Spirit. And He says, Renee, stand up. Well, if she doesn't trust God and He says, stand up, she stays seated there. It's impossible to please God. Oh, he's playing a joke on me. Oh, there's some guys that might look at my backside and God doesn't know that. You know, so I'm not going to stand up. You know, guys, that's kind of the logic we get into. We don't trust God. God told the father of our faith to go kill his only son. That's what God told Abraham to do. He had waited for this son. They had tried to manipulate things and have one through the handmaid, and that wasn't it. And God finally gave them a son. And now go offer it. God was trying to get a point about this. You've got to trust God. I'm not talking about trust somebody else's hearsay or interpretation about God. I'm saying God has given you the right to know Him through Jesus and you need to get to know Him. This isn't a big complicated thing either, by the way. Because God is really simple. We think we've got to sit down and read the Bible. I was talking to one of you just a couple of days ago, and this person was saying, I feel bad because I haven't been reading my Bible. And that was one of the things that this person was feeling guilty about, among other things that she had been taught to feel really guilty about. And I said, do you realize that the church was born? It was centuries before any Christian ever had a Bible. How did they get into the Word? Getting in the Word is not about sitting around reading a book. It's about basking in the simplicity that's in Christ Jesus. God is merciful. I don't need a theology book to tell me what that means. That means when I've been a jerk and I tell my wife, Honey, I'm sorry, and she says, Oh, I forgive you, it's okay. That's mercy. I don't need somebody to explain that to me. That doesn't know anyway. Is it time here? Okay, we'll come back and I will further wow you with my knowledge. In God, and the more you get to know God, the more you're going to to work your way into what's right. See, we think in our mind, in our tree of the knowledge of good and evil mind, that if we figure everything out, we can create perfection here. We can create the perfect church. We can create the perfect friendship. We can create the perfect marriage. But in this world, it's not that way. The, the, we grow through hardship. We grow through pain. God may not want you for what He's trying to do with you to have an easy marriage. He may want you to have a hard marriage. But see, we think, oh, the perfect marriage is the one that we get along and we, it's, it's easy because we want the easy way. I can tell you my marriage has never been easy and God assigned us to each other because my wife has had to grow being married to me, grow in the way she prayed about, 
but she married this crazy evangelist and I've taken her all over the country and we've done all kinds of crazy stuff. But that's what she prayed for. That was God's assignment. And I married my opposite. And, and I've learned so much about women and about people that I use in ministry every day from having to understand somebody really different than I am. Way beyond just being female, which is a big difference, but somebody that's opposite in so many personality ways. Well, is that the wrong marriage because we have trouble? Well, if, if you look at it through the eyes of the world, yes. But through the eyes of God, listen to this. Though Jesus were the Son, He learned obedience to the things He suffered. Suffered. You think you deserve the perfect mate? Did you miss something along the way when you made Jesus Lord that you weren't perfect? And you don't deserve perfect? You don't deserve a mate? See, when you come to faith in God, it's so freeing. And it turns the world upside down which I'll talk some more about in just a moment. So the second point is a functional marriage requires two functional, godly people. Now, I have people come to me for counseling. Sometimes they're people that aren't really disciples. And I'll say, now, are you wanting a Christian marriage or something else? Because I don't do that kind of counseling. I have a master's in behavioral studies. I have ten PhDs in life. And, seriously... But but I, I know, and all of my degrees, by the way, are secular. For those that would be impressed by it, my first degree is in chemistry. And I did chemistry and worked in that and published research in it before I decided I wasn't cut out for chemistry. No. God called me into ministry. But, but it really, that helped me in that discipline to understand the science behind people and to, to use science to analyze and think. Uh, and, and grow my own faith. But my master's is in behavioral studies. I have another master's in business administration. I study people from that whole spectrum. Ministry is a calling. It's something that I have learned through grassroots study and life and ministry. Uh, I offered God to send me to a seminary or a Christian college and all that, and God shut that door for me. That wasn't my calling. And so that's not what I did. But I've learned uh, on the anvil of life and ministry. Um, and I study hard. And I research hard. And I think hard. But So, yeah, that's kind of my background. And God has taught me that way. Uh, so the second I want to say is that a functional marriage requires this. You're looking for a functional marriage. What is that? We talk about dysfunction. What is that? You know, you go in psychology, nobody knows what it is. It means you're not happy. Well, bless your little heart. See, when you come to Jesus, you realize it's not about you. It's not about you. And if it's not about you, marriage isn't about you. So what is functional? Functional is a person of faith that accepts what God gives them. And deals with what comes. Most people go through life trying to play God. That's the original sin. We want to fix the people around us. And if they don't act right, we punish them with our wrath. We pout. We act silly. We're mad. We play games. That's dysfunction. Sin is dysfunction. 
You know what dysfunction is? It's sin. Marital problems come from sin. Usually both. It usually is a, a sin ping pong game. That's what it looks like. I sin against her, she sins against me. I sin against her. Jesus taught us how to stop that. He said, put the racket down. If somebody strikes you, put the racket down. Turn the other cheek. If somebody steals from you, put the racket down. Give them more. If somebody treats you unfairly and makes you do more of the housework, do more than that. Jesus taught us to forgive. People come in for counseling. They're always wanting to fix the other person. Let me tell you what. I have a plaque on one of my office walls that said, He who has conquered himself has won the hardest battle. Fix yourself. That's what Jesus said. Why are you trying to get the speck out of your friend's eye when you've got a big old bean sticking out of your own? You're poking their other eye out with that big stick sticking out of your eye. Work on yourself. It's amazing. Guys, listen to me. You can bank this. Write this one down. The greatest impact that you are ever going to have on anybody, let alone the whole world, is the impact that you have on you. You want to change the world, change you. And then you'll do all you can do. We're always trying to fix stuff. Even our social justice and Christianity as Christians trying to play God again a lot of times. We're going to fix the world hunger problem. Listen to me. God could fix it today. God could fix it today and doesn't. Now you say, why does it? I don't know. You're going to have to go to a theology book and listen to somebody that talks deep to get that one explained to you. God could fix it. He could heal all the sick people today. He could end all death today and doesn't. We can't and we're going to try. But does that mean we shouldn't try to help people? Not at all. No. But there's a big difference in thinking we can fix it all and play Messiah than just be a faithful servant. Quit trying to fix everybody. Just... Be friendly to this person. Feed this person. So many times we're looking off out there trying to do something grand, but we're doing that to make a name for ourselves. The Tower of Babel is most of our plan for our life. We're trying to build a tower to heaven to make a name for ourselves. We're going to get a degree and we're going to be somebody. We're going to build a life. Why? To make a name for ourselves. Jesus freed you from having to do that. You don't have to do it anymore. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to live for the world. You don't have to live for money. As ministries, you don't have to do that anymore. Turn loose. See, the first thing about functionality is, is developing identity. When you're a Christian, it's just about Christ. We're lost in Him. I don't have to make a name for myself. My identity is Christ. Listen to what Paul said. For to me, to live is Christ. That's it. That applies to marriage, guys. 
That applies to dating too. I can tell you a whole lot about what kind of marriages you have by the dating culture. You have one of those selfish dating cultures where everybody spearfishes and try to pick the good-looking person and you're too cool to go out and serve somebody else and take out somebody that's not pretty enough or handsome enough for you. You're going to be a stinking husband or wife when it comes to a godly marriage because you're selfish. In the body of Christ, we take the weakest, the most uncomely, the homeliest people and then we figure out how to take care of them, and we all style flex to them, and then we meet our needs. But that's not the way most churches function. You know that. You know, guys, I'm being hard on you for a reason. You want to prepare for marriage? Learn to wash feet. Learn to surrender. Then a lot of the problems are just, they just go away. They're just gone. You can't wound a dead person. We have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. We died. Paul said, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. That means by His authority. This is what he said. See, how do you identify yourself? If I say, who are you? You can tell, well, I'm I'm Ronnie Worsham and I grew up in Oklahoma and I went to college and I did this. Is that your identity? Your degree plan, your ethnic, your racial, your national, state, college, your social status. Are you a geek? Are you a cool guy? Cool girl? Are you a cheerleader? What are you? We have a lot of cheerleader girls at UTD, I've learned. It's just really a big problem here. Very silly. A lot of silly girls at UTD. Now they're sitting there analyzing that. They're writing silly down so they can look it up and think about that a little bit later. I'm just playing. You guys are awesome. You know, your personality. See, what is your identity? Well, your identity is going to drive a whole lot of stuff. You see, what Jesus taught us is to first be a son or a daughter of God. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. That's, that's my identity. We, we live up here. We live in a kingdom. We're not first Chinese or white or black or American or rich or poor. We're not even that. We're not first Smith or Joneses. When you're in the kingdom, we live up here. We have one king. He's the eternal king, Jesus Christ, and he's our king. And we all participate down in here in various segments because He wants us to. But we we live up here. We're the body of Christ and the whole creation is down here groaning, waiting for you to reveal yourselves. And there's nothing that will reveal you more than how you handle your sexuality. Which now I'm paranoid, Brandon. I don't even want to say now. You're, You're married subject. Your marital status. I don't know. Well, <clears throat> your personality ultimately is going to decide your boundaries. Now, boundaries is kind of a psychological subject. It's a good one because I can tell you a lot of people don't have them. We have to have boundaries. We just start with this is the body God gave me and I've got to drive this thing. I have to make decisions for it. 
I, I can't let you make those decisions for it. I've got to make them. I may submit to you if it's okay with what Jesus has said. I may submit to you and what you request, but otherwise I've got to do this. That's my boundary. But many people don't have them. So we let other people tell us what to do with our bodies. They want to have sex, so we have sex. They want us to drink, so we drink. They want us to be mad, so we get mad. Well, you've got boundaries. Boundaries are the parameters that we deem necessary for successful Christian living and growth. These are to our personal lives what boundaries are to our personal property. This is my yard. I have a yard. And it, it's not fenced in the front. People can walk on it. And it really ticks me off. And if I ever catch them, I'm going to talk to them about those people letting those big cow dogs poop on my lawn. <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> really. If you ever have a dog, don't let it poop in somebody's yard. That is just disgusting. So it just fertilizes it. The problem is it fertilizes one spot. So you've got green grass this tall right here from horse dog poop. And then you've got the rest of the yard. It doesn't help. Please, you're not doing us a favor by horse dog in our yard. That's, that's our yard. And, and you're welcome to come in and I keep it groomed. I like having a decent looking yard. I, I pay to have it groomed. You see, and, and you're welcome to come, but it's still my yard. I can invite you on it and I can invite you off of it. Those are boundaries. This is my house. This is my bedroom. You know, there's, there's people that can come in my yard and there's more people that can come in my house. That's, that's a little more, you know, private. And then there's more people that can come back into the bedroom. My kids can go back there. But, you know, if somebody else, you know how that is? You go to somebody's house and you're just kind of walking around and kind of walk back in their bedroom. I start opening a few drawers. <laughs> You've done that before to your parents. Don't act like you haven't. I tell parents all the time, if you think there's anything hidden from your kids, you're dreaming. And if you want to find something, especially if it has to do with sex, ask your kids where it is. They'll know, oh, it's right in there in that box. Didn't know what it was. I thought it was a balloon, but I... And do all kinds of fun things with it. I don't know what it is. But... Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. So... I don't... You're, you're all fallen. You're all fallen. There's several up here that are strong cases for total depravity, but I won't say anything about Paulo and Surratt. But... I don't want to get started there. But I guess I have, haven't I? They're sitting together. That's great. That is perfect. That is perfect. If you go to our church, if you want to really hear about Paul and Surratt, come to Northeast sometime. Seriously, you know, we, we set boundaries. During dating, we tend to set boundaries on boobs and butts and genitals, you know, what we can touch and can't touch. The best boundaries just don't. I mean, it's a one-way street, icy street downhill. I mean, what do you do when you start that? It's like teenagers going steady. Where does this go? You think you're going to stay with this person? Do you want a 15-year-old to pick your mate? 
Because that's what you're getting ready to do if you stay with this person. A 15-year-old picked your mate. And trust me, most 25-year-olds aren't any good. And I'll guarantee you're not. This is just stupid. But, but, and that's important. But we need boundaries on our emotional, spiritual, and psychological lives. Uh, they're just not often clearly defined. And so we don't know what our yards are, so we get walked all over. Now, guys, it's one thing to submit willingly. It's another thing to enable people. Because Jesus didn't let people abuse Him. When He was in Nazareth, they wanted to kill Him. He walked right through Him. No, it's not my time yet. You decide when you're going to suffer for other people. You let God lead you in that. But you know, we need boundaries on how we're going to be talked to. Jesus was the master of assertiveness. Now, there's three terms you really need to understand real quick here in communication. One is aggressive. Aggressive is any language or behavior that is in any way threatening, belittling, or intimidating. You know, J.D., if you don't do this, you're going to get yours. That scared him, didn't it? He's played basketball with me. I shut him down. It was embarrassing. (laughs) Embarrassing. He still, I won't play against him anymore because I've declared myself champion. But um, <laughs> even an old guy gets lucky sometimes. But, uh, you know, I lost my train of thought, but I really had something good. <laughs> it's about how you're going to be talked to, how you're going to be treated, how you're going to act. So the first is this aggressive. It's where you threaten people. It's being menacing. Guys can particularly be aggressive. Women generally are not openly aggressive. They're the other side. It's called passive-aggressive. You know what that looks like, ladies? It's pouting. It's the silent scream. Is anything wrong? No. (laughs) That's a lie. (laughs) When your cheeks are puffed way out, that's always a lie. You know. But, but what God has taught us is godly assertiveness. And that just means telling people what needs to be said. Let no talk come out of your mouth, mouths, but what is beneficial for the other. My wife needs to know what I think or what I feel about things. She needs to. I need to know what she thinks or feels. I just, that's communication. You know, we, we use this term intercourse now as a purely sexual term. The term intercourse is much bigger than that. Sexual intercourse is one kind of intercourse. But intercourse is the mutual interaction in any way. Marriage itself is an intercourse. Our, the bride of Christ, the church with Christ, that's an intercourse. There's, there's an exchange going on here. Well, assertiveness is being able to tell the other the things they need to hear without belittling or threatening them. What would work best for me, sweetheart, is this. The way I see it is this way. Not, well, you need to, you need to, you need to. That's aggressive. It's not going to be helpful. You know, when you point, that's already problematic. It's just learning to talk to people. When when somebody's yelling, you say, can can I say something? It's not going to work well for me to be yelled at 
I can tell you you're not going to get a good response and I'm going to listen to it for about 30 seconds and then I'm leaving. I'm not going to be yelled at. I can say, well, you don't need to yell at me. Well, I'm not God and I don't need to be giving you orders, but I can tell you what I'm not going to do. It's hard to argue with that. You know what I mean? Jesus was a master at that kind of conversation and I don't have time to get too far into that, but you need to have boundaries of how you're going to be talked to. Now, that doesn't mean that you're all somebody and that everybody's got to say everything just right because it's kind of like the perfect basketball game. I'm not going to play basketball with you unless you never foul me and everything goes right. That's not basketball. That's why you get five fouls. It's, it's a game. Yes, we're trying not to have the wrong kind of contact, but it is an aggressive sport. So you've got to be realistic here. Marriage is a contact sport, so to speak, and you've got to be realistic. I'm not talking about being so prim and proper that somebody can't raise their voice. It's, there's a lot of emotion there. I'm talking about not being abused. I'm talking about not, if you're not let, helping somebody to let them go there. And, and that's where, in a community, you've got to help. If your husband is really acting out of line, you need to get some of the bigger brothers to visit with him. To say, are you treating my sister badly? And I've had these talks a few times. That is my sister that you're treating that way. And I'm not real happy about it. They don't know what I'm going to do, but which would be basically nothing but belittle and make them feel badly. Now, I'm going to talk to them. Try to convince them that's not going to work. Boundaries are about willingness to talk openly at all. Sometimes we're not willing to talk. That's selfish. If you're going to have intercourse with someone, they've got to get to know you. And it's selfish not to tell them because that's a control mechanism. You've got to try to figure me out so I can manipulate you rather than here's who I am. Here's what works for me. Boundaries are about how we address sensitive matters. When and where. You know, sometimes people want to talk about sensitive matters at really bad times. You, you see couples out on in, with groups getting in fights. Well, that's a bad idea. First of all, you make everybody miserable. But that's kind of cute when you're a teenager having a fight out in front of people. It's like, grow up, you know? But a lot of older people need to grow up. Boundaries about how we will handle sex after we are married. Guys, if you don't have any self-control before marriage, you're not going to have any after. You know, answering the question, what does it mean that our body belongs to our mate? Brandon talked about some of these scriptures. Does that mean you're a sex slave? That doesn't mean that. And we'll talk some more about the upside down kingdom in a moment. There's a principle here. How we're going to uh, handle both of our needs. Hand both of our needs. That sounds bad in this context. How we will handle both of our needs and desires. Sarah got that. You can always tell when Sarah finally gets a joke. <laughs> she wakes up. You know, how far can we go with selfishness and move? Well, I'm in a bad mood. Well, grow up. Come on. Some people think because they're in a bad mood. Some of us, we've just been spoiled. You know, we're just spoiled. We're bratty. We live as bratty adults. We just 
we, we call it adulthood. We're just brats. We're selfish. We're mean. We're ugly. And we, we, we have issues in our marriage. No, you've got two people acting like jerks. That's usually what's going on here. Now, the issue is there's sins here that need to be dealt with and you're trying to call them issues so you can justify being a jerk. And there is no excuse for that. Sin is understandable, but it's never excusable. Sin is forgivable, but it's never okay. It's always sin. See, how are we going to handle both of our needs? You, you think that you're going to... You know, I, I read the surveys. Well, the average marriage couple have sex three times a week. Well, number one, everybody lies about sex in a, in a fallen world. It, they just do. You ask a guy, you know, if he masturbates. Oh, no. Lie. I, I taught our youth ministries, don't ever ask a guy if he masturbates. Ask him how often he masturbates. About how many times a day. I'm being facetious. Okay. But I'm just saying, you know, because if there really is an occasionally you meet somebody that doesn't struggle with that. But guys, let me tell you something right here. This is, this is probably one of the more strong things I'm going to say. 95% of men today are sex addicts. They're sex addicts. It's just like alcoholism. They think they can't live without sex. That's what Brandon was saying. You can too. Yeah, you can. Jesus did. When you think you can't live without something that you're supposed to live without, you're addicted to it. It's to varying degrees. But our world addicts us to it. And we just accepted that just like in my day, the generation of the 30s and 40s, it's it's incredible how many of the men were alcoholics. How many of them smoked? It was just accepted that was the way it was. You see this in cultures. Well, we got a problem here. And sadly enough, more and more girls are becoming sex addicts. It's when we when we think sex is about first about our pleasure and we have to do this. And we wake up one day and we just already are. It's like people that give their kids alcohol. I, I, you know, I just talked to another guy this week, you know, that I, I've been counseling and working with. He started drinking heavily when he was 12, started using drugs right after that. You know, you think he's got a problem with alcohol? Yeah. He's not the only one. I mean, I've known, I've known people that started drinking before that. Now, I talk to guys all the time about their life. I've known guys who started having sex when they were six. Yeah, the aunt babysitter, you know, would have him lay on top of her and do stuff. How do you, how do you grow up normal from that? I said this at church that we've got... How many, how many people in here have looked at porn before? Raise your hand. How many of you are lying? Raise your hand. You know, I said we've got a whole generation. If you if you watch much porn, it's it's pretty nasty. 
I've done quite a bit of reading about it too. Well, I developed a porn addiction in college. Didn't even know what it was. You know? Was raised in a really, really, really screwy world. And you just kind of wake up one day and think, oh my gosh, what has happened to me? Well, I was taught to masturbate when I was five. Didn't know what it was. Now, I'm, I'm obviously being open and confessing here, but I, I know. Some of you have got similar issues, worse, different. But you know, And then we wake up one day and we're trying to deal with this. But we've got a, a generation of people that have really skewed views of sex. Guys, women, I've never known a single woman that wanted a guy to ejaculate in her face. I've never known one. And apparently that's kind of the newest deal in porn. Oh my gosh. That's not good preparation for marriage and sex, guys. Trust me. Porn is about the worst thing that you can do to prepare for marriage and sex. Well, I will just venture to say it is the worst thing that you can do. Girls, the same thing. You know? When you're doing that, you're going the wrong direction and you're preparing yourself for bad marriage, it's going to be a problem. See, we have to learn how we handle that. Because my wife's body is mine, does that mean I can just force sex on her or him? No, it doesn't work that way. And I'll say some more about that in just a moment. See, many of us just go on lockdown during dating concerning emotional and psychological issues. Just let the other be surprised at how they set boundaries afterwards. You've got to start talking here. You know, this is, this, this is a dating time. You're dating to mate. And whether you're trying to really pick the person or dating to develop relationship experiences, it's still the mating progression. You don't just go on lockdown. You've got to discuss issues involving past problems. Before we got engaged, I told my wife everything that I could remember about what had happened to me. I was sexually abused from the time I was five. Would you think she had a right to know that? I think so. I mean, we're, we're trying to be each other's helpers. I want to help her. I need her to help me. And this is just one of those areas, but it happens to be the one area she's going to have a monopoly on. And when you've got a monopoly on it and you're not taking care of business, we've got a problem. I want to have a monopoly on her sexuality in that regard. You can't go on lockdown. You've got you to talk about you know, those kind of issues here that you don't want to talk about. You know, your issues about family and all your different views. You've got to talk about those things. Uh, Pre-engagement counseling. I really am excited about Brandon and the ministry team instituting pre-engagement counseling here. It's something that is just, it's, it seems to be a no-brainer, uh, but we just hadn't really done that. But I would encourage all of you to really do pre-engagement counseling and just in the sense of evaluating, is this really a viable engagement? Don't make it just a kind of a cursory thing you do to get engaged. Really evaluate the relationship and who you are because it, it, it can be extremely helpful 
But don't make the decision before you do it or it's premarital counseling disguised as pre-engagement counseling and that won't work well. And, and if you've already made that decision, premarital counseling is a second best for sure. Um, you've got to develop attitudes. You know, all of the attitudes of Christ play into marriage. You know, they're not suspended in the bedroom. Jesus is still Lord of the bedroom. You know, it's about these attitudes of humility and servanthood to both mates. It's just, it's just incredible to me how many men and women don't take the time to understand the opposite sex. Girls, you need to read about guys. You need to study a little bit about guys. This is the car you're going to be driving for a while, so to speak. And you need to kind of get to know a little bit about what's under the engine, so to speak. And guys, the converse is true too. And if you try to project yourself on them, you're working with the opposite. And so you need to understand, yes, are there parallels? Yes, but it tends to be the opposite. A mirror of each other. Together we're completed. You need to take some time to get to understand what you're dealing with there. And none of, and get rid of the ooh factor. Whatever that is for you. You know? Because you're to be a servant to your mate. See, Jesus turned the kingdom upside down. We'll talk about that under submission in just a moment for just a couple of minutes, but it's an upside down kingdom. Your attitudes of unselfishness and mutuality. That, that's what Sexuality in marriage is about mutuality. It's about letting somebody else please you. Some of us, we wouldn't let anybody make us happy for the world. That's why we manipulate them. You've got to keep trying to please me. Some of us grew up with parents that way. If you jumped this high, they'd raise the bar on you. And so, that's how you do everybody else. And so your poor husband or wife's trying to please you, but they never can. Even though it was great, whatever they were doing was great, but you have to keep... It's never... That was awesome. That's all sinful control stuff that we learn from the world. Um, mutuality is about learning to please somebody else and, and learning to, to be pleased. And, and learning to set your standards the right place. You're not God. Who do you think you are? That you think you deserve what? You deserve the only thing any of us have earned is hell. Everything else is something much better. We didn't earn a mate. We don't deserve one. We don't deserve to be pleased. We deserve hell, but look what God gives us. And when you start there, it's so much easier to be pleased, but too many of us, we can't be pleased because we're trying to play God in whatever that looks like and we're not qualified and we're not good at it. See, attitudes of optimism and encouragement, if you're a grouchy bear, get over it. That's sinful. Attitudes of love, mercy, and forgiveness. You know, the, the most important component to a godly marriage is not love. Well, if you want to say agape, I will go with you on it. 
But but under agape love, the most important component of that is mercy. Because a marriage breaks down when one or both won't forgive the other one. That's that's when it's over. It's over. It's not going to grow anymore as long as that's there. So you, you have to learn to do that. Guys, we've, we've got too many people that have been raised as princes and princesses by moms and dads that think they're kings and queens. Well, they're not and you're not. And that does not make God happy. You need to develop realistic expectations. You need to right-size your expectations. Too many of us have watched too much Disneyland. We've got the Disneyland married. It's not Disneyland. It's not Disneyland. That is made up and they made it up to get you to spend a lot of money. That's not marriage. The Freddy Krueger marriage. I mean, you, you just talk about, you hear some people talk about marriage and you'd think it was Halloween movie. Because, you know, I, I married a girl that I've known since I was in the sixth grade. We knew each other's family. We went to church together for a while, moved off. Got together when I was a senior in college and she was a freshman. And we were considered old maids at that time back in the Ozarks where we're from. But uh, So I waited a long time. Um, you know, we were both in the middle of storms. Her parents had just gone through a bloody divorce. Awful, awful divorce. They married because they were expecting her. And it was just, they were sweet people. They just were away over their heads and... She was an only child. I was just still trying, kind of reeling. My mom had died when I was young. My dad was abusive. It was just hard. So we were both, God used our marriage to grow together. And we've struggled. I mean, we've had to work. But we would have struggled single. More. But God has blessed us so richly. We have four of the most awesome kids ever. You know all four of them. Most of you. You know, are they perfect? No. And they know it. They'll talk to you about it. You see, God works through all of that. He just works through it. But if you think, well, it's got to be perfect, we would have never gotten married. If we had tried to get that marriage, we wouldn't have gotten married. Unless God worked through somebody else, you wouldn't be here right now. Because it was our marriage and our pursuit of campus ministry and coming here I prayed for this campus. I prayed for the UNT campus. I prayed for the Collin College campus back in the spring of 1989 when there was not any. There was, there was one little bitty campus ministry on this that was non-functioning. You know, Brandon's the one that started it as a student here. You know, it, it came through a marriage that's less than perfect of two people that have struggled and grown and dreamed. And we've had so much fun. I don't know a family that has any more fun than we do. Laughing and cutting up and playing. and See, it's, it's not Disneyland. It's not Halloween either. And a lot of this stuff is by people that are, you know, those, those Halloween movies are made by people that act like Freddy Krueger. If you won't act that way, you won't have a Halloween movie. You know, you won't have that Casablanca, the drama. Oh, my gosh. See, Sarah got that. She's into acting. She got Casablanca. She'll get Love Story in a minute, too. She's probably seen it. Most of you say, I don't know that one. 
You know, you got the ma and pa. I just hate hearing people calling their mate mom and dad. Mother? You got mother? That just sounds freaky. You married your mom? Does that not gross you out? You know, here, Sugarland, Texas, we're just going to live out on the little, we want to get some acres and we're going to go out there and get fat together. I don't know what we're going to do. And the last is Lolita and the stud. You've been watching porn and that's not it either. See, you develop habits. Are you a slob? Are you a neat freak? Are you a cat or a dog? You know, cats are the ones that when you walk in, they just kind of walk around and look at you. And if you grab them, they'll scratch you and run. If you leave them alone, they'll come and rub up against your leg, right? You don't grab cats. Dogs come in. <laughs> Brianna has got this little dog. You need to go. If you want kids to go see Brianna's dog, Laney. She gets right up in your face. She's just, just trying to get your face off. Brianna does that for some reason too. I think that's what she got it to. She's got a long tongue too. You know, that's... But, but who are you? You've got to develop habits. Some of us need to come out of ourselves and quit playing cat and mouse with people. Talk to people. You know, don't make people just have to work to talk to you. Learn to ask some questions. Have you ever been with somebody, you ask them, you play 20 questions, they don't ask you one? Ask me, just, it's your turn. Ask me something. Are you a sex addict? I <laughs> so, well, according to worship, I am. <laughs> I'm male, so I am. That's for another day. Number two, a growing marriage requires two growing people. I'm not going to go over this, but you've got to be, you're never going to be perfect. Just be growing. Just be growing. And that's by focusing on Jesus. Number four, the most important marriage principles are direct functions of discipleship and obedience. You will never have a more godly marriage than the net godliness of both of you. You just can't. You can't outgrow that. You want this Christian marriage, but you're not good Christians. I don't know what to say. You've got to have godly thinking. Minds and hearts that are set on God. You look in Colossians 3 there. He tells you to set your heart and your mind on God. And then He says, therefore, put off these things. And if you look at marriage killers, a lot of them are down there, especially verse 8 for Christians. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying to each other. You've got to get rid of those things. They'll kill your marriage. They're never going to have good marriage doing that. You're never going to get a life, Christian life doing that. And he says, then as God's holy people, clothe yourself. Listen to this, compassion. You show me a marriage fighting and I'll show you people that aren't compassionate. When you really get to know what guys go through, girls, you'll have a lot more compassion for how hard it is to contain the sexuality we've been given. Really, seriously. Guys, when you get to know the complexity of how God has made the, the female psyche, you'll have a lot more compassion for why they struggle with moods sometimes. And just how all that works. It's much more easy to be compassionate 
I don't, you know, I am so glad I was not born a woman. Not because I don't think they're awesome, but just the plumbing part of it. My goodness, the stuff my wife has gone through. I mean, she keeps trying to force me to go get a mammogram just to experience it. I don't want to have one of those. Guys, if you know what that is, they put women's boobs in a dig and squeeze it really hard. Tell them to hold really still. Well, you let them put your you-know-what in the vice and tell you to hold still, you know? Now, the more you get to understand the opposite sex, the more compassion you can have. So if she comes home from a mammogram hating you, you'll understand. After she has your first child and you get to stand there and coach her breathing, she's going to hate you for a while. You just get ready for it. But when you understand, understand the opposite sex, you can be more kind and compassionate about it. You know, it's just what it is. Humility, kindness, gentleness, patience. Guys, women are like roses. If you grab them and crush them, it's not going to go good. It's not going to be beautiful. Because God equipped rose bushes with thorns. And you grab them, and about the time you get it really squeezed, that thorn is going to get you. And it doesn't feel good. You never win a fight with a woman, guys. Ever. 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 One gave birth to you and you were marked to be defeated by women. (laughs) Ladies, you never win a fight with a guy. Even if you think you did, you won't win it. Fights are never won by anybody but Satan. See, bear with each other. Forgive, 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 forgive. It's okay. Not forgiving is inviting a whole lot worse. Listen to that. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You can't let Christ's peace rule if you don't know Christ. Positive thinking. If anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think about these things. The first girl I really fell in love with was I was in the eighth grade. I mean, I fell hard, hard, hard in love with this little girl. And she became my standard. And she wasn't perfect at all. I mean, after she got out of school, she broke up, I think, two or three marriages. But she's beautiful. You know? the, the, the next girl that I really cared a lot about was, was, she was kind of a Christian girl. I'm going to say Christian. She was a whole lot more Christian than I was because I wasn't. It's my sophomore year in college. But she had hair I didn't like. And it was just kind of, I don't know what she did to it back here. It just, I don't think she did anything. But she was really cute. Her face was cute, but her hair... I just... I try to stay in front of her all the time. (laughs) You know, I was afraid... I'm worried about her stupid hair. You know, it's just... We get fixated on the one thing that bothers us. As though we're... I'm... 19, 20 years old, and I'm a specialist on women's hair? Really? You know, think about things that are excellent or praiseworthy. Your, your mate's going to go through a lot of stuff, and it's really hard. I mean, it's just hard as you get older. I look in the mirror and think, oh my gosh, who is that old man? Sometimes I look in there and it's my dad, and I go, ah! I made the mistake of looking in Tana's makeup mirror that magnifies one time. 
Oh my gosh, I had to take Prozac for months after those. Books. That is scary stuff. Freddy Krueger is here. You know, Ooh, this is bad. You know, you have to look at people with benevolent mind. Brandon talked about that, our worship of this kind of symbol of beauty. God looks at the heart. And the more you can learn to look at the heart, the less you'll look at the externals anyway. The more you'll learn, because, because true intimacy is about the heart. It's not about getting off physically. Marriages that don't have that kind of intimacy don't ultimately have good sex. It's the marriages that get beyond the beauty. So that my wife still thinks I'm handsome. And I really don't much care what anybody else thinks about it. And I don't mean that mean. And I think she's beautiful. And I really don't care what anybody else thinks about that. As long as they keep it to themselves. You know what I'm saying? She's my sweetheart. We've been married 36 years now. You know? I hope I hope she dies one day before I do. Because I want to be the one that's sitting by her so that I can be there for her. I don't want her to have to do that with me. And then I want to go be with her. You know? Because we've done this together. We're partners in life. We're joint heirs. See, together. We made that decision. But you know, I have to choose to look at her positive traits. She's had four kids, one miscarriage, countless mammograms. She's had a hysterectomy. She's had her tonsils removed, her sinuses scraped out. She's had her uterus scraped out. You know? She doesn't look 16 anymore. But neither do I. And it would really be freaky if I were married to a 16-year-old. <laughs> and that's what it looks like when you go to Las Vegas and you see somebody that looks like me with somebody that looks like a 16-year-old. You know? You know, excellent praiseworthy. God sees us as holy and blameless. In marriage, you've got to learn to see your mate as holy and blameless. God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. You have to be able to say to your mate, my grace is sufficient for you. I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you. I told my wife a long time ago, I will never leave you. Because she was worried about being divorced. Because that's all she had seen. All her family divorced. That first year, every time we would get upset, have any kind of disagreement, she was afraid I was going to leave. I said, I'm not a leaving kind, Tana. I promise you, I'll never leave you. Ever. So even if she committed adultery, even if she committed adultery, I will never leave you. If anybody walks out the door, it's going to be you. I'm not a leaver. I'm not a quitter. I made a commitment. For our 25th anniversary, I wrote on a card, when I said I do, I did. And I always will. Be a perfect husband, that's not what I said I'd do. I didn't promise that. I couldn't. I promised that I would stay with her for life. That's what it was. You see, you know, encouragement. We need to be each other's biggest fan. You need to learn to be a fan. Are you positive right now? If you are, if you aren't, you won't be later. Learn to be complimentary. Guys, women, 
women are those roses and they want to be told they're beautiful. Well, what are you going to compare beauty to? Some model you've looked up that wouldn't have anything to do with you and would think you were stupid? That's beautiful to you? Or this girl that thinks you're some kind of awesome, which do you think's beautiful? What is wrong with you, dude? You know, flip that over, girl. You know, it's just being encouraging. I, I'm, I like being old for a number of reasons. I can get by with stuff I could never get by with before. He was just like, he's old. Don't worry about it, he's old. You know, it's just, I'm old. I, you know, if Brandon had said that about ejaculating in a woman's face, he would probably get fired. But I can get by with it. He's old. He's just sick. You know, they're sick. They get, they get really sick when they get old. Just ignore him. You know, it just... You know, I can look at young ladies and say, you are a beautiful, sweet, godly girl. And she doesn't feel like I'm hitting on her. She thinks there's no way that guy could be hitting on anybody. <laughs> he didn't hit on his wife, you know. You know, you can get, I can look at young guys and say, you are a smart, handsome guy. And he might feel like I'm hitting on him. <laughs> Unless my last name is Sandusky, and then he might be <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I get, I'm old. I'm old. So. You know, Hebrews 3.13 says, encourage one another daily. Guys, negativity doesn't help anything. You need to be people's biggest fans. Start with your roommates. Why did it get cool for us to just cut each other down all the time? Where did, well, Satan started it. I'll tell you why. We can take it, but why should we? Let's, let's make being encouraging a cool thing. Griping each other creates losers. Encouraging one another is what winners do. Do you want to be a winner or a loser? I decided that with my kids. That I would be their biggest fan. Because I had the biggest critic. I played basketball. I was captain of my team. I made a lot of points and I played hard. My dad never said anything good about me playing basketball. He criticized me all the way home. Every game. Told me everything I did wrong. Did it make me a better basketball player? No, it made me hate him. Too many people sleep with their biggest critic. Guys, when, you, when you're married to somebody, they see you at your worst. When your butt gets fat, they see it. When you're <laughs> sagging, they see it. It's just, it's scary. You don't want your critics around, you know, saying, oh, wow, you're looking bad now. You want somebody that's, you know, in sports language is your, is a homer. You know, homers are people, whatever their team's doing, they're awesome. Well, that's, that's what you need. You need somebody that believes in you. Negativity doesn't help anything. In the long run, it doesn't. You want your relationship to be always net positive. And sometimes one or the other falls below, by the way. You know, life gets us down. Well, you've got to be more positive when they're negative. You don't go in there with a blowtorch and say, you better quit being that way. That's not going to help anything. You're stoking the fire. Now you're both negative. 
and I'll be getting to see you next week if you make it that long. Another thing I'd just say here is just number five, a fixation on marriage is a deadly is as deadly as fixation on church. So what are you talking about there? That you think that you're all something because you're married or that you think you're all something because you're in a church. Israel was that way. They had this false sense of security because of their temple. That's why Jeremiah, the lamenting prophet, said, Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you don't oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, don't shed innocent blood in this place, and if you don't follow other gods to your own harm, then I'll let you live in this place. Sometimes we think we're all something because we're married. You see, people hide behind marriage. Marriage doesn't suspend anything. It's your first church. And some people think, oh, that means we can go home and be selfish. No, that's not what church is. I'm a senior pastor. I lead a whole movement of churches. And my job is not to teach us all to sit around on our cans and enjoy one another. We're on a mission to reach lost people and help people. Yes, we're going to spend a little time. We're going to work together, but then we're going to get up and go do something. Well, that's what my family is. I raised my kids. I went into their rooms almost every night of their life that I was home and laid my hands on them and said, God, they're yours. Brandon is yours. Help me never to forget that. God, I commit that I'm going to raise him for you. You do with him whatever you want. Did it with each of my kids. Tana and I both did. There's no accident. We didn't script that they had to be, quote, in ministry at all. In fact, they all have secular degrees. I insisted that they get a secular degree. That going into ministry, so to speak, was there in God's call. That's a calling of God. That's not my call. But I raised them to be disciples of Jesus and gave them to God. And they belong to God. Now, you, you, you know, you don't take false sense of security in that and be fixed on, fixed on our marriage. You just got to work on our marriage, work on our marriage, work on it. Where did anybody get that? You got to work on your relationship with God. You know, Jesus to the Laodicean church, they had this blind confidence, this smug church. He says, you, 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 you say we've acquired wealth, we don't need a thing, but you don't realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You now this blind confidence in our marriage, if I get married, I'm going to be happy and we're working on our marriage. That's one of the worst, sorriest marriages in the world. But the Christian church are full of selfish marriages, selfish families that have been raised because we've been taught to worship marriage. Jesus said at the resurrection, there will neither, there will neither be marriage nor will be given in marriage. They'll be like angels. See, marriage is a means to an end. It's not the end. Because in the end, we're going to get what we were getting in marriage and much more. We're going to get the intimacy of God. We're going to get the ecstasy of heaven. In the short run, we get the Holy Spirit of God and we get to be married and we get to experience a taste of the ecstasy of heaven and some of those things. 
But that's where it ends. But the pendulum keeps swinging, and right now we're trying to solve it by idolizing marriage. So many church ministries, even teen ministries, are built around the dating game. So many campus ministries are that way. Oh, who are you with? When we go to teen camp, we don't let our teenagers pair up at all. You can do that at home. We're here to focus on God. That's why we encourage you guys. In your early college years, date a lot of different people. Learn to relate to lots of different personalities. You know, when, when I have some guy that's really struggling with lust and sexual addiction, I always encourage him to date more. But the right kind of dating. So you break down this sinful thing you've built up with women. They're real people. Learn to treat them like real people. Make friends with them. And you're not going to break that down behind in a closet somewhere. You're just going to be back there with your stupid laptop looking at porn. Get out of that. Get out of that world. Learn. Women will teach you. The best person, guys, to teach you to be a good husband is your wife. Because she's godly. And the best person to teach you ladies to be a good wife is your husband. You're not married to all men. You're married to him. Figure him out. Get him to teach you. See, it's a mean to an end. If you can't be happy single, you won't be happy married either. Don't you think for a second that it's going to fulfill you. That's stupid and that's Disneyland stuff. Or modern Christian church stuff sometimes. The secret of contentment is in Christ. Philippians 4, 4 to 13. Period. It's rejoicing in the Lord. You've got to learn to seek first the kingdom and those things will be given to you. See, if you don't get whoever comes to me and does not hate his wife, husband, can't follow me. Now, hate means that in comparison to God, I will do what Jesus did to His mother. Jesus hated His mother going to the cross. What that means is, is He did something for God that was probably the most excruciating thing He could do to His mother. That's let her see Him butchered. See, that's not talking about being mean. That's not hate. That's, this, is a, this is a kind of speech. He's saying, with your mate, it's as though... When it comes to God, I'll let them go through hell. And they need to do the same with me. My mate is not my Lord. Jesus is Lord. So you've got to learn to get that right before marriage. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of my marriage. Preparing for sex in marriage is preparing for sex as a single. It's about self-control. It's just that. It's about understanding acceptance. It's about developing a positive, healthy attitude toward it. It's not this and it's not this. It's this. It's what it is. It's just like everything else. It's just like eating. You know, eating is a great thing. If you eat too much, you're going to get fat. If you eat too much, food's not going to taste good. If you don't eat enough, you're going to be in trouble too. Your body's going to break down. You need to eat. And you need to enjoy it when you eat. God is like a dad. When, when Tan and I would buy our kids food or we'd buy them birthday presents or Christmas presents, what we wanted is for them to come into that room and just be thrilled. And our kids were always great at that. 
My son Cale was the best at it. He just loved everything. And, and he learned that very early, so he got more than the others. He's a lot better, lot better child than the others. You know, you've you got to develop this. Uh, develop a positive attitude toward it. Purifying yourself of the world. You've got to right-size the role of sex in our thinking. You know, our fixation on big boobs and big other body parts, it's just stupid. It's just silly. That's a part of just the sinful world. It's the same that we're doing with sex. We make it bigger than it is. Sex is going to be its best when it's not at the center of the marriage. When Jesus is at the center of the marriage, it will be. It'll be the best it's going to be. Sometimes that's going to be better than others. Sometimes, you know, you may have sex two or three times in a day. Sometimes you may not have sex for weeks or months. It's different for different marriages. And as Brandon said, it's for a lot of reasons, you know. Uh, Let's see, let me see what else I can go over right here. Becoming a giver, not a taker. Um... Number eight, you've got to rethink marital submission. I wish I had more time with this. I don't. I do not believe male domination. I believe that male domination was a part of the curse. Your desire will be to your husband and he will rule over you. That wasn't God's will. It was not God's will. It was a pronouncement of what sin would do. The stronger would dominate the weaker. In the kingdom, He turned it upside down. The greatest are the servants of all. Guys, you want to lead your marriage, you need to set the pace in serving. Is there anything you're unwilling to do? Anything you're unwilling to do disqualifies you from doing a whole lot of other stuff. There were very few days in our home that I wasn't the first one up. I never wanted my wife to be coming and say, Daddy, it's time to get up. Oh, gosh, how do you live with that? You know, I wanted my kids to see a man of God in the home. I wanted my kids to see a man that on good days I enjoyed my marriage and on bad days I served my wife. And I came home and I gave my very best. And I went to bed at night and I left it all out there on the playing field. I tried really hard to be a great dad and, and a great husband. And by the way, the most important thing you do in raising your kids is love their mom or their dad. You are doing your kids a horrible disservice when you don't love their other parent with all your heart. This thing about submission, see, it starts, Brandon talked about it, it's, it's about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The idea of male spiritual leadership, I, you know, that's, that's a construct we kind of made up too. There's been times my wife has been the spiritual leader. There's just times I wasn't doing very well. Even when I was in ministry, I was so thankful I had a wife that would talk to me and remind me what I was about and help me and say, now get back out there and play your game, okay? And there's been times I've done that for her. And it's like that footprints in the sand thing. Sometimes we just carry each other. That's what we do. It's just what we do. But the greatest submission in marriage was called to the husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Let me tell you who made the biggest sacrifice. It was Jesus, not the church. The one that submitted themselves the most was Jesus, not the church. And that's that way in any endeavor of Christianity. 
you're not qualified to lead for something you're not willing to die for every day. God may let you, but you're not qualified. And dying is not in the grand. It's in your willingness to wash the toilet without having to be griped at. It's in your willingness to get up off your rear end and help. It's in your willingness to realize being home with your kids is not sitting on your rear in the recliner watching TV while your wife, when she gets home from work, cooks and does the dishes and then spends time with the kids and you're spending time with wife and kids, you're lying to yourself. It's not in coming home, women, and griping at your husband and your kids all evening and talking about how pitiful you are in your house full of appliances and conveniences. I, I, I saw inconvenience. I watched my grandmother in a house that didn't even have indoor plumbing in the restroom. I'll just start right there. You know, I've seen inconvenience. I've seen people her, do her washing out in a big tub out when it was really cold. And she had to keep boiling water to keep it from freezing. I know what inconvenience looks like, and she never complained. I never once heard my granny complain. You know, my granddad was an alcoholic. I was standing by the casket. You know, I helped administer the funeral when she walked by, and she just was weeping. And she looked down at him and she said, I stayed with you the whole way. And it was hell for her, but she did. She stayed with him the whole way. And he was a rough guy, a sweet guy. It's submission. It's the upside down kingdom. I've given you some other scriptures there you can look at. You know, the principles of spirituality, mutuality, practicality, flexibility, and sensibility. Look at those things down there. Those are the things that you've got to rethink about marital submission um, and kind of get out of this. We're going, to, we're going to bring the, the curse view into Christianity and make it an excuse for men to dominate women. You know, I don't have any time to talk about that, but I'll stop now and let you guys take over with Q&A. Thank you guys, by the way. What in, what are the most important things to be looking for in a potential mate? Well, um, somebody that's submitted to Jesus. I mean, really submitted to Jesus. The, the beauty of getting to know people in ministry like this is you can know them before they realize you like them and they put their peacock plumes up. You know, they figure out what you're looking for, the old if you're rich, I'm single kind of stuff. So you can watch people. And, and get to know them so that you, you see people that are really spiritual, that serve people, that care about people. So the first thing would be somebody that, that Jesus really is Lord and that they're, they're spiritually focused. Um, two, somebody that is unselfish. Uh, selfish people are awful to live with. And for some reason, we, we all like to be saviors, and so we run to somebody that's a jerk. We're going to fix them. Oh, my gosh, you are getting ready to live a one hell of a life. That's all I've got to say. Um, people need, that's what these, these times are for, is for you to get over some of that stuff and prepare. But selfishness, people that are prideful, look for somebody that's humble, that doesn't expect everything to go their way, that can handle, that can take a blow, you know, can take a foul, that 
you know, look for somebody that's not easily breakable. Um, I always loved watching Brianna with her brothers. She She's the youngest of the, the boys. She was tough, man. And I knew that would serve her well in marriage, just to be with a guy and know that guys are just kind of rough sometimes. And I don't mean that in some abusive way. I just mean, you know, we're we're not refined the way women can be. We, you know, we have a different kind of way of relating sometimes. But sometimes women are just too breakable. It's like, come on, you know. Uh, if you wanted to be married to a woman, marry a woman, you know. <laughs> A lot of women, they marry a man and then want to act like a girl, I, you know, and vice versa, I might tell you guys. But, but just those are a couple of things that I can think of. But just people that you enjoy being around without dating, they're just fun to be around. It, that quote he said is really true. You need to you need to be with somebody that you, you, you like to talk to. But I'll tell you, be with somebody you can sit with and not talk to. People look at married, look at those married people, they aren't even talking. There's nothing better than to be with somebody you can sit and have dinner with and you don't have to talk. It's okay. We'll talk if we want. We don't have to talk. That's, can I go out and we'll talk a little bit and sometimes we'll just sit and eat. Watch everybody else. Look over and say, look at those people. They're not talking. <laughs> those are just my quick thoughts. You want to say anything about that? No, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing I see is just kind of remembering when you're in this phase of life and you are kind of looking that, as he called it, peacock plumes, I would just say look at how they treat the people that they're not infatuated with. And, that, and you're just going to get a much more realistic picture. Look at how when they get interested in you, how do they treat their same-sex friends, you know, if they – Drop them because there's something new and more interesting. They'll drop you when there's something new and more interesting. And you just see people's character much more clearly in terms of how they treat other people. And, and that's one reason why we encourage, you know, dating groups, double date, you know, because when you do these long, only single dates, you're never around that person, around their friends. You don't really know what they're really like. You know what they want you to think they're like. And that's, I mean, we all do that. We try and put our best foot forward, but you can get a better insight than that. Um, yeah, I think the other one just going off of that, there was several that were just kind of talking about physical attractiveness because obviously we talk a lot about not letting that be the sole driving force. Um, but, you know, what, what kind of role should that play? To what extent do we let that drive us? I don't know. Just some thoughts. My one thought, I think, there is, you know, we we did a piece of theology last year just on media and how it impacts us, and, and I think we feed ourselves this steady diet in our minds of beautiful people week in, week out, and then we talk about those people, and, you know, and, and I hear guys and girls in our ministry, it's, you know, do you think this person's hot? Do you think this, you know, we just constantly focus on the most beautiful people. And I think um, if you'll back away from that and be careful about what you, you know, what you're looking at all the time, uh, you'll be amazed at what you will begin to find more beautiful. And I think we just kind of fixate um, a lot of times and, um, you know, and then come up with these unrealistic standards. It's uh, we're going to pass out an article 
um, next week, I think, or in the next couple weeks on Friday nights and Thursday night. But uh, it's about a guy mentoring a young guy who's, you know, wanting to – he has this great girl, and he likes her, and they get along great, and she's godly, and he's just, like, not really wanting to commit. And he finally tells his mentor, he just says, I, I guess I'm just holding out for a 10. And he says, holding out for a 10, but brother, you're like a six. You know, and, and I think there's just a lot of truth there. That's like I, I, you know, hear those things, and I'm like, that, that person's never going to date you, especially if they have your attitude, you know. And so I think we, we have to sometimes look and say, am I only attracted to these uber beautiful people because I'm so fixated on that? Okay, I'm going to sing to you. If you want to be happy for the rest of your life, don't marry a pretty girl for your wife. So from a personal point of view, pick an ugly girl to marry you. (laughs) My kids used to say, that's not a real song. And we listened to it and thought it was good. When I was a kid, that song came out, and you know, as a little kid, you're thinking about what that's about, and it was it was to be funny. But um, seriously, this fixation on outer beauty is just sinful, and the degree that that controls you is the degree that flesh controls you. God. God looks at the heart, and part of being spiritual is teaching us to look at the heart. But to do that, you have to work harder. Again, we like everything easy. Well, Clint Black sang an old country song back about 15 years ago that we tell ourselves that what we found is what we meant to find. Well, how's that working for most people? Um, so... You know, I I would say it it really comes to what you think about. And if that's what you sit around and think about, that's what you're going to be attracted to. Uh, The more that you you start breaking down those walls and and start kind of working to look beyond that in people, um, the less it'll be that way. Um, Again, I know you guys kind of kid sometime because Brandon is not married. And I just want to tell you that no, anybody that knows college students, any of those. Now, somebody like Brady probably does, but they like Brady and talk to him. Um, and just what makes people tick, he studied you. And I think you can see he's a pretty smart guy and he does a lot of research. You need to listen to him a lot more than you do. Um No, he's not been married, but he reminded you Jesus was not married. Um, That's not what qualifies you to talk to people about being godly, is not having been married. I can tell you most people that, that's an overstatement. A whole lot of people that are married are pretty bad at it. And some of the worst are preachers. So, you know, be careful there. But, yeah, I, I would just say, you know, work at first being beautiful on the inside to other people. If, if you're fixated on your own physical appearance more than you are your in, you know, internal appearance, you're going to have problems. Do you spend more time fixing your outer body every morning and worrying about what you look like on the outside than you do on the inside? Um, 
So I, I think you have to get way back from that because when you come to the dating relationship, you are what you are. You're not doing somebody a favor by just, you know, marrying somebody that you're not attracted to. But but if you're not attracted to them, it's probably because you're not worthy of them. And so don't 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 do that to them. But but I would say on the flip side, um, all of us need to, you know, look our best. It's kind of like if you had got a car, kind of keep it clean, take a little care of it, take a little pride. Um, girls, you know, I mean, yeah, you don't have to be fixed up all the time, but you know, what what are you saying when you don't try to keep yourself neat and pleasant? Guys, the same way. I mean. So, you know, that's, that's a real tough one that you could deal with with what it is, but you're going to be attracted to what you focus on. And if you're masturbating, thinking about a hooker, that's what you're going to be attracted to, you know, or, you know, Brad Pitt, whatever it is. It's just what are you doing with your mind? Um, so, yeah, that's what I'd tell you is just you, you've got to get your thinking straight and then pray about it and let God help you pick your mate. So can you just talk a little bit about how one can develop realistic expectations for that marriage relationship? I mean, we've talked about having them, but here we are now. What's your advice there? Um, well, no, I think it's a great question. It's just that it's just, as you well know, it's a really tough question. That's what we've been trying to kind of talk to tonight. But but I'm just going to tell you that I think the American standard for marriage is pretty bad, even in the Christian church. Brandon's told you this last round of idolizing marriage and all the marriage seminars and the marriage this and the marriage that. How's that working for us? Um, marriage is a function of discipleship, godly marriage. It's just a function of discipleship. That's why our ministry model in all the ministries we impact is to make disciples. We're not in the business trying to make people happy. Not my deal. You know, if you're looking for a spiritual massage, you're in the wrong place as far as I'm concerned. That's not what we're in the business of. I'm not a shrine whore, and I don't teach our ministers to be shrine whores. We're not here to service you. We're not here to make you happy. We're here to teach you as best we can about Jesus and how to follow Jesus, how to be a disciple. And sometimes that, that's, that's hard. It's difficult. It's not pretty. It's tough. It leads you to tough places. You make tough choices. You end up on crosses. That's where the way of Christ leads us to crosses. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. So many of these questions are just a Christian version of worldly selfishness. What I want. The first thing you do is to deny yourself. The second thing you do is to take up your cross daily. And the third thing you do is follow him. And if God gives you a mate to, to walk down that journey with you, it'll be pretty good. But if you think your mate's supposed to be your shrine whore, you've messed up again. And if you get one that is a shrine whore, you're going to get what you pay for. Is that blunt enough? I don't know. I told him I was going to talk nasty, so I feel be hoping to do that. Here you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think uh, one of the things is just 
talking to more people, asking about their marriages, especially people that seem to have pretty normal marriages, um, as opposed to, you know, taking all of our cues from sitcoms and things like that. Um, I, Gilda and I were talking at, at when you guys left for dinner, and, um, you know, it's I, I can tell you, you know, as the years go by and I know and work with more and more people who are married, it's like I was telling her this year I've had a lot more guys that are talking to me that their wife wants to have sex more than they do than I hear the other way around. But if you watch TV, you would think that's never the case, you know, and I and I'll mention things like that to guys in this room and it's like in one-on-one like no way that would never ever happen you know and that's it's not a one-time thing it's just a repetitive thing it's like well you know we our perceptions of that stuff are are just kind of off you know again our guys perceptions of sex are just kind of off because it's a five minute personal you know, private affair, and no, it's a long process that's very intimate, you know, and, you know, and that is a very different thing, and a lot of them, they haven't prepared for that, so I just think talking, you know, to more people and being willing to ask some frank questions, uh, I find a lot of them, you know, they'll answer those questions, and not just one couple, but either talking to multiple couples or talking to people like Ronnie that has talked to multiple couples and can give you a reality check. Let me say one more thing to that. One of the great resources you have are the people coming out of your focus ministries that have gotten married. I will tell you the by far most functional marriages I know as a class are the ones that came out of focus. It's talk to Aaron and Amy. Oh my gosh. You know, that's an awesome marriage. I know both of them. I spend time with Aaron. They're doing awesome with that. Jamie and Laura, Blake and Krista, uh, Mandy and Andrew. Who? Yeah, Joe and Debbie that are here. Mike, you know, I could go on and on. There are probably 15 or 20 of them. Um, You know, Tyler and Brianna that are here. they have they've done marriage right. They're very functional. They're at different phases in their marriage. Uh, they're great examples because they're not perfect marriages. They deal with life well. That's what functional is. It's just you deal with the stuff that come along. But they have done a great job. And so, for for those of you just kind of looking at that, you they're all around you from the ex-focus people. If you don't know some of them, just ask some of your campus ministers. They can point you to them. You know, Garrett and Erica over there. They These are people who have just gotten married recently. Kel and Jamie Ann. That, Jamie Ann's not in this ministry, but they're, you know, they're around. She was at Colin and UNT. And the, I, I know these couples' marriages. Uh, I talk to most of them or people that do. And, again, I could go on, but I can't. There's several. I don't remember. Ricky and Alina. They're, they're just doing really well. So. Okay, so this one just talks about that uh, a lot of adults encourage uh, them not to get married really young uh, just because of kind of fundamental changes that happen within us as individuals uh, during our college years. Uh, And so the question is getting at what's the difference between that and really big changes that are going to happen when I'm married, like having kids. 
um, you know, big career changes, things like that. So just kind of explain your thoughts on that advice. Well, our world is real complicated. You know, when it, it was much easier when people lived with their families and their support systems were right there and they just didn't have all the temptations and the complexities. Uh, marriage is ten times more complex now than it was back even when I was a kid. So getting married when you're young, it's just a much different deal. The complexity of the world you live in, it's just really hard uh Again, the support system's not there, the, how much it costs to live, all of those things is really hard. And two cannot live as cheaply as one, you're dreaming. Uh, that's stupid. Um, so, yeah, there's just a lot of those kinds of things. I think at some of those levels, um, I think young people, because of of being allowed to be younger longer are not as mature in a lot of ways now when they're 18 as they were when young people started working hard when they were 14. They, they grew up in our age. Let me tell you what, when I was 17, my brother left home. I was, I took care of a whole house by myself. My dad would do nothing, zero. I cooked all the meals. And he expected them to be cooked. We didn't eat junk. I cooked food. Uh, I paid all the bills. Um, I kept the house clean. It was zero tolerance. I made straight A's in school. I played basketball. I drove a school bus. I drove a school bus when I was 17 with kids to school, back and forth. My check went into my dad's checking account. I didn't even have access to it. I had to sneak money to my sister who was pregnant and then had a baby. I was sneaking money to her uh, by writing the grocery check. I bought all the groceries. Uh, I made Thanksgiving dinner for family that came in. I was 17. Now, how many young men or women have ever done that? That was 17. I was captain of the basketball team, and I was not allowed to complain at all. Zero. Couldn't complain. So... And I got cussed out pretty regularly. I might tell you that. That's a different world. It's just, and my dad, he was the oldest son. You know, he was working on the fields when he was a little boy. They worked hard. Well, you're a different kid when you're 17. But, but you know, so that's a lot of the deal. It's just too complex now. And, and the choices that you make, the difference between an 18-year-old and a 21-year-old is absolutely phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal in the way that you make decisions. The difference between 18 and 25 is even more phenomenal. But there is a window there. I, I really do think, you know, you, you look at that window, it runs from 22 to, you know, even up into the 30s. Uh, depending on who the people are. But most of these young marriages, they're, they're just going to have a lot of problems. And I just say, would you want an 18-year-old to pick your mate? It's like, I'm going to get advice on who to pick. You know, let me find an 18-year-old. Would you pick my mate for me? Because that's what you do, whoever, whatever age that is. Now, ultimately, even if you're in your 20s, you need to talk to some older, more mature people around you for advice, especially ones that know them. So, yeah, I don't have a ton to add to that. I mean, I think, the again, the, the statistics are, are pretty clear that the older people wait 
to get married, the the less likely they are to get divorced. I, I don't know that that's that shows correlation and not necessarily causality that um, because there's probably various reasons people wait until they're older and and or get married younger and um, but but I, I do think that you know adolescence now doesn't end at 18. It's for a lot of people they're lucky if it ends at 28 and you know we're getting out of college and moving back in with our parents and as you said the just the life skills aren't there and things and I, I think tremendous personality changes happen during college. Um, you're forming relationships that are much more likely to last for the rest of your life than your high school relationships are. A lot of you've Learned that the hard way. I, too, thought I would be best friends with everyone that I was friends with in high school. You know, and then um, I have one friend that has stayed a really good friend to me, and I treasure that friendship because it's so rare, you know, to have someone that, that sticks with you that long. So, but college friends, I have a ton of them. Most of them I am still friends with. And and those are the people that shaped who I was as an adult, um, not the people I was with up until I was 18. So. All right. Well, this is the last one uh, I'm going to ask from this. I tried just so you guys don't hate me. Um, I tried to kind of weed out questions that were either really specific, um, kind of more pastoral situations that would be hard to speak to uh, without asking some questions, as well as ones that would just open a huge can of worms and that we could have entire other pizza theologies on. So um, if you guys want after this, you can accept open questions. But uh, this one was just talking about premarital sex, and, and I think the two questions it brings up um, is one, just biblical um, reference to it. And what does the scripture really say about it? Uh, and then two, especially given that you've done so much marriage counseling, can you talk a little bit about just how you feel like bringing that in affects affects marriage? Yeah, the, I think the biblical question is a is a good one, and it's one I'm I'm probably getting asked more and more in recent years than early on. Um, the the sort of basic belief that premarital sex is outside of, of God's will for us is really being questioned in a lot of ways, and I think a lot of it comes from what I was talking about when we talked about scriptures. We want to find a verse that says the word premarital sex. And then we don't find it, you know, it's like I'm looking at premarital in my concordance and it's not there. And it's like, well, the Bible doesn't have anything to say about it, you know. Um, you know, the, the bottom line is there are a whole lot of things that are rolled into one kind of key word, especially in Greek, porneia. Um, King James would translate it fornication. The NIV translates it sexual immorality. Um, and, you know, we have a whole lot of extra writings from the same time period that comment on that. So um, whether things like premarital sex are included in it is not questioned by anyone that studies this stuff. I mean, that was that was very basic. Um, I think it gets trickier when we get into things like pornography um, now, again, porneia, pornography, you see where this word is even coming from, but um, because because they didn't have something quite like that in that time. And so then I think we are making, I don't think, a big jump, but we're having to sort of extrapolate and think, what is this really, um, 
look like? I mean, were there pornographic things then? Absolutely. Um, was it the way that, that our culture uses that thing in a very private kind of and that wasn't quite as, as widespread. We didn't have printing presses and internet and things. Um, but yeah, so where is that? I would say anytime you see a reference to sexual immorality, um, that's including a lot of things, but that one would be um, very obviously included. And that's why you see it listed separately in a lot of cases from things like adultery. Um, and, and that's one clue I would point you to sometimes in these things. We think things are the same thing, but if, if the two words are listed in the same list, then we kind of know at least they're thinking about them differently. Sometimes they do get wrapped in together. Fornication is any sexual activity outside of marriage is fornication. Um, if you're married and you commit those with someone outside of your marriage, it's adultery too. Uh, adultery is fornication. Fornication is not always adultery because it may be between people that aren't married. Um, it really is a no-brainer. Um, the The idea that two godly people are going to lay on the couch and make out and, you know, touch each other sexually and all that, and that's somehow okay, is just downright silly. You know, it's just sinful people trying to justify, you know, playing games. Um, but again, it's it's trying to perfect. Again, I'm I'm getting married to have good sex. So I need to practice or check it out or whatever. It's you're playing games. That's that. And and to try to you know I don't know, split hairs over something. It just becomes silly. Fornication is just any sex outside of marriage. That's that. Oral sex, all that kind of stuff. In marriage, the marriage bed is undefiled. You've got two people that have given themselves to each other. Not everything is smart. Not everything, I mean, things are sinful. If it's not mutual, if there's not mutuality there, or if it's harmful to one or the other, even if both of you want that, I mean, just because somebody wants to be beaten doesn't mean you ought to beat them. Uh, and some people really have, you know, are masochists, and that's not healthy. And a loving mate would never kind of fuel that fire with somebody. You know, in some way that's really harmful to them. But but other than that, the marriage bed is undefiled. So, but yeah, that's that. It's just, we're, we're playing games. It's make-out stuff. You just, you know, what do you got to prove? That you're sexual? You know, that's, we're, we're just playing games. We're playing with fire. So, but, but as you get, you know, closer, particularly in engagement, Learning to express affection in a self-controlled way? Sure. You have to learn that. But there's no formula here or rule here. Um, but but I just think so much of it's self-evident if we quit trying to justify ourselves and just start trying to really follow the Spirit. So much of it's self-evident. And then when you, there's going to be fouls. When two people start loving each other, there's going to be fouls. You know, you get five of them. So, but don't don't foul on purpose. It's like in basketball, don't play dirty ball. You don't foul on purpose. Don't hurt somebody. But realize it is a contact sport, and you got to learn to love each other and 
hold each other's hands and give each other a kiss every now and then. But I can tell you there's just no good reason for you to be laying down on a couch together because nothing good is going to come from that. You know what I'm saying? And I don't believe sex between somebody that, that gets married or that's planning on getting married is bad and gets married as bad as somebody who has a one-night stand. I don't believe that. I don't believe that all fornication is equal. I don't believe that all impurity is equal. But it's still all fornication. And it's still all impurity. So as Christians, we're not trying to see how much we can get by with. We're trying to to be pure for God. So I don't know if that... You want me to sing another song? No, I'm kidding. You have a song about fornication. <laughs> well, I do, as a matter of fact, but I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> so that's... That's it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to close us with a, a prayer then. Um, Ronnie and I are available not just tonight, but in general. And um, so I know there were a lot more questions. I didn't read them, but um, but yeah, it's, we we have to sort of cut off. And last year we went about 30 minutes over, so we'll go about 10 minutes under tonight and and uh, get you out of here. God, I just want to pray that uh, we would be the kind of students of your word who are honest with ourselves, are honest with the scripture. I want to pray that like Paul talks about to Timothy, that we would correctly handle your word of truth so that we don't have to be ashamed. I want to pray that um, that you would continue to, to challenge our ideas and renew our minds and call us to truth. Um, not just from classes, but from each other, that we would question things and encourage each other and correct each other and call each other back to to the Scripture. I want to pray that as a community that we would have healthy thinking on marriage and on sex. And I I just pray uh, that out of that come great marriages with great sex and and that we would not just have a, a line to offer our culture about what's right and what's wrong, but a witness in front of our culture about what's good. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.